So, I mean, do you guys think that the science is settled? You know, I'm under the impression, being in the industry, but apart from that, just generally following social media, looking at different outlets, one day they say something, the other day they say something different, and then these investigators that go in, some of the journalists that I follow, sort of like they're anti-authoritarian, so they're always looking for something to like spice their program up, and they do find stuff, and when they find it, it's fascinating to see, like, how can... CDC say one thing one day and then the very next day say something different. Yeah. And the same stood for WHO. If you guys recall the story about, oh, the asymptomatic people are not the danger to, or it's very unlikely for them to spread the virus. And then the next day they had to pedal back. I mean, what's going on? Like, it's, you know, it's just so confusing at times. Yeah. Let, can we save that? For, let's save that for the episode. Maybe we just start rolling, huh? Because we should discuss that in the episode. I thought we were rolling. Welcome to An Architecture, episode 32. In this episode, we're going to drill down on a topic related to COVID-19 that I don't think has really been fully addressed. There's been increasing controversy over the potential for COVID-19 or the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which causes it, to be spread via airborne aerosolized particles as opposed to being spread by droplets, which are larger particles. I've started looking into this a lot more deeply recently because my town has been trying to figure out what to do about reopening schools. And it occurred to me, reflecting on my background in healthcare design, that there might be a problem in existing school buildings with their ability to manage an airborne infection risk if, in fact, airborne transmission might be a viable transmission path for the disease. So in our episode 29, we gave a broader perspective on some issues related to COVID-19, such as their effect on public space and the evolution of the healthcare infrastructure in the United States that at that time people were thinking might not have enough capacity to deal with a crisis like COVID. This is going to be a very different type of discussion. We're bringing on Goshi King and Joe Green, who are the hosts of the Engineering Tech Podcast, because these guys are both HVAC engineers. I met these guys at Porkfest. Goshi actually came to New Hampshire as a freestater. And in my previous life with a firm that I was working for before I started my own architecture practice, I've worked on projects with the firm that these guys now work for although I've never worked with them personally. So we've been looking for an opportunity to get together on an episode, and this seemed like a perfect topic to cover with them, because as it turns out, the HVAC systems in buildings are very important to the management of potential airborne infection risk. On the engineering.tech podcast, Goshi and Joe cover a lot of topics around technology, science, engineering, and even some architectural ideas with a libertarian or ANCAP perspective that's similar to the ours. I first heard about their podcast when they got a mention on the Tom Woods show for getting the web hosting through his promotional links. I listened to a few episodes and then I told Tim about it. I said, oh, look, some other guys are in New Hampshire doing, you know, talking about engineering and architecture and stuff. Like, we should get in touch with these guys. Tim's like, oh, yeah, I know these guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They asked me to help name their podcast for them. <laughs> and we get into that a little bit towards the end of the episode. We talk about some of that uh, history. <laughs> So it was a natural fit. And I think when you listen to the episode, you'll hear that it was a pretty congenial and easygoing conversation with these guys. 
And these guys tend to do really detailed, technical deep dives on specific topics. Uh, some of the ones they've covered so far include power generation for private cities, passive homes, homelessness, geothermal air conditioning, virtual reality, and many more. So it's not like they're just talking about air conditioning for in every episode. As much as we would like them to. <laughs> they have a wide range of interests, and they really do their homework to get down to the nitty-gritty of what makes these things tick. As we were preparing for this episode... We got into a lot of nitty-gritty ourselves. We were going through all kinds of studies about this airborne infection concern and trying to come to some way of quantifying what some of the risks might be out there. Now, I want to say that, for the record, we recorded this episode on July 19th of 2020. And the reason that's important to note here is that on July 23rd, there was a study that came out. The lead author's last name is Santarpia from the University of Nebraska Medical Center, which was, I believe, the first study where they were able to demonstrate replicability of the SARS-CoV-2 virus from an airborne sample that they collected. And then there was another study that just came out on August 4th. The lead author is Led Nicky. This is from the University of Florida, where they were actually able to capture airborne particles and reproduce them as infectious virus particles. Essentially, this shows that the concept of airborne spread is possible with this virus. And, you know, again, just for the record here, as we were recording this episode, these studies hadn't come out yet. And so we were kind of speculating on some of this stuff. But now there are these two studies that seem to put a lot more weight on the case that we're making here. That Led Nikki article got a write-up in, in New York Times. There's another thing that I found, which is a letter from two doctors, uh, Michael A. Kohansky and Noam Cohen. They reference a study by Van Dorimelen et al., which is an older study. But the interesting thing that came out of that study was that they quantified that the virus can survive as an aerosol for at least three hours with an estimated half-life in an aerosol of one hour. So in our discussions, we sort of assume that the virus remains viable for the entire time that the aerosol is airborne. However, this study seems to imply that there is a bit of a half-life there and a decaying viability. Yeah, that Van Dormelen study, this came out right around the time that everybody started, at least in the U.S., started freaking out about COVID. And it showed some duration of airborne viability, some duration of surface viability. This is where everybody talks about how long the virus lasts on different materials like metal or plastic or paper. That all came out of that study. It's been criticized by people who have argued against airborne transmissibility because this was really kind of just done in like a laboratory condition where they had this high concentration in some kind of sealed gadget, you know, and they were able to observe how many of the particles were still floating around. So I'll just put that caveat out there that that might not be reflective of actual conditions of this virus within a room, let's say. <laughs> sure. But there is an important point to be made here, which I don't think we really made in the episode, which is that even with these studies that have come out showing that airborne particles may be viable, what we still don't know is two things. One is what quantity of airborne particles someone might be producing. Another thing is what quantity it takes for somebody to become infected. And then the third thing that we really don't know is for these particles that are floating around in the air, how long do they remain viable in the air? As you'll hear in the episode, we talk about this equation called the Wells-Riley equation, which you can plug a bunch of factors into, like the size of the room and the time you're in the room and the air change rates in the room. And it gives you a probability of somebody being infected if there is somebody else in the room who has an airborne infectious disease. The one thing that I believe that equation leaves out is the question of how long these particles remain viable for in the air. 
So essentially what we're talking about is how long the particles themselves are in the air for. But then there's this other question of even if they're still in the air, are they still viable? An example that I was just thinking of about a half hour ago when we were up at our neighbor's house cooking some s'mores around their fire pit is that, you know, you imagine you have these ashes or sparks that are kind of rising up from the fire pit, right? And they're flying around and floating around in the air. But what you see is that they come up from the fire and they're burning for a little bit, but then they burn out. So those particles are still in the air, but they're no longer hot. They could no longer, let's say, start a fire if they landed on a pile of leaves. So I think that's an analogy here is that it's possible that you might have airborne particles up in the air for some period of time, perhaps in addition to the half-life we talked about, which is how long it takes for those particles themselves to kind of settle out of the air. I think there might be another discussion of a half-life or whatever of how long those particles within the air are viable for. This Lednicki study talks about some reasons why these particles might not be viable, why airborne particles might not remain viable while they're in the air. One of them is UV exposure. Exposure to sunlight or, or other forms of light can be very damaging to these types of particles. Another one might be humidity. There are a number of airborne diseases where it seems like humidity plays a role in how contagious they are. And there may be some other means by which these virus particles could essentially die while they're floating around in the air. So the reason I want to say that is that as we get in and start talking about some probabilities within our podcast episode, that's something that I think we've left out is the fact that not only do you have these particles that after eight hours, if the risk in that room is increasing, it's possible that that concentration of particles isn't as infectious anymore. All right. So I want to put that caveat up front here. Hopefully that'll make a little more sense as you listen to the podcast. But all that said, I think that these two studies by Santarpia and Lednicki they give a lot more gravitas <laughs> to everything that we're discussing in this episode. And I think it's something that people are going to start paying a lot more attention to, especially since this is coming out right around the time that everybody's starting to send their kids back into school buildings. And I should say, too, that neither of these studies have been peer-reviewed yet. They're both preprints. So obviously, they need to be vetted a little bit further. But they're still worth taking a look at at this point to try to understand the risk of airborne transmission. One detail I want to pull out from the Lednicki study that's pertinent to this episode, and again, this will make more sense when you listen to the episode, the air samples that they took were from two hospital rooms with COVID patients in them. One of the samplers was about six or seven feet away from one of the patients, and the other sampler was about 15 feet away from the other patient. This is in two separate rooms. And these were in hospital rooms where they had air change rates of six air changes per hour. They had MERV-14 filtration and they had UVC light radiation within the ductwork system. So these rooms were about as good as you can get for the HVAC controls within a space to try to manage and mitigate airborne infection risk. And even in those rooms, they were still able to collect these viable samples over a three-hour period. They didn't collect very many particles. I think the total number was like 217 in the whole study, so that's between two rooms. Even in these rooms that had kind of best practice for HVAC controls, they were still able to get these viable particles out. So that's just something to keep in mind when you hear us starting to talk about some of these various factors um, in the episode. Since we recorded this episode, I've seen a few other people talking about similar topics. One that was really interesting was on Bloomberg City Lab, where they explained that the steam radiator heating method, which is used in many old buildings, was actually recommended as a best practice during the Spanish flu in 1918. And this seems kind of counterintuitive because once you listen to our episode, we talk about the importance of changing out the air 
in the room. So you would think that some sort of forced ventilation system would have been considered the best practice. But back in 1918, a lot of the air conditioning technology that we have today was probably much more primitive. And so back then, the best practice was to open all your windows in the middle of winter and crank up that steam radiator <laughs> to keep the room warm. That's what they did to naturally promote these outside air changes. And so that's why when you go to any old building these days, it's ridiculously hot with these steam radiators in there. And you, you find yourself having to open windows in the middle of winter because that's actually how it was designed. Build tight and ventilate right, huh? <laughs> I saw another interesting thing on Twitter. As you do. <laughs> where someone was looking at the seasonally adjusted excess death rate for children. And you can see there's a drastic drop in the year 2020 compared to previous years, where for people under the age of 18, the typical number of deaths per week is usually up around between kind of 600 and 700. But in the first half of 2020, it just drops right off down to about 450 as of May or June. Now, I thought this was interesting because the initial tweet that I saw about this was speculating that this was possibly due to the fact that the lockdown was actually reducing car accidents and deaths due to car accidents. However, I went back to kind of double check this and I found a chart where they've actually broken it down even further to show that the bulk of that reduction is in the cohort of infants under one year old which is kind of interesting in itself. And I don't really know what the cause of that is. I mean, I guess it probably has something to do with all the additional sterilization measures that are going on. And I don't know. I don't really want to speculate too much on that because <laughs> I don't know what the actual cause is. But I guess the key takeaway from there is that if you look at that original statistic and think that that has something to do with the fact that kids aren't going back to school and therefore they're out of danger, that's not really the case. It's actually this improvement in infant mortality driving that whole number. So the last thing I want to raise here, towards the end of the episode... I present sort of a crackpot theory as to an alternate approach to vaccines for achieving herd immunity throughout the public. Now, I want to state up front that I don't consider myself to be an anti-vaxxer. I've had vaccines. I understand how they work. I think that some of them do work. However, as you'll hear in the episode, I am skeptical about the flu vaccine. And I am very skeptical about the various untested COVID vaccines that people are starting to talk about. And in fact, I just saw an article that the U.S. government has agreed to buy 100 million doses of a COVID-19 trial vaccine for $1.5 billion from uh, Moderna. So this is a vaccine that has not been thoroughly tested. It's a new technology of vaccine called an mRNA vaccine, which this technology has never actually been used in a commercial vaccine. So it has a different mechanism of operation than the existing protein-based and DNA-based vaccines. So when you talk about sending kids back to school in this environment of COVID, a lot of people are saying things like sending kids back to school is experimenting on children, which fair enough, it kind of is, which we mentioned in the episode. However, you kind of have to pick your poison here. I mean, what else are you going to do? Are you going to give the kid this vaccine, this untested vaccine? Is that experimenting on children? And where do you think the risks are? A lot of people out there just want some sort of silver bullet you know, yes, no, binary thinking answer for this thing. Just give me something I can inject my kids with, then I don't have to worry about this anymore. But the thing is, the science is not that simple. And if you are in favor of vaccines, which again, I am to the extent that they have been properly tested and that the long-term effects are well known, the immune system responses are well known, I don't have a problem with the vaccines per se. But if you've got this new untested vaccine, which is used on a mass scale, you know, 100 million doses, that's a third of the people in America. And let's say there is some adverse effects. I mean, with that many doses of the vaccine, there's bound to be some adverse effects to it. 
How do you think the anti-vaxxer crowd is going to respond to that? This is going to confirm everything they believe, right? (laughs) That vaccines are simply dangerous. This could be the new thalidomide. And I want to mention that the original SARS-CoV-1, there were some vaccines in development for that. And of course, the, the actual virus died out before they really needed it. So it never really went into advanced trials. One vaccine that they were trialing was causing some severe immune system problems in the mice that they were testing it on. And there have been some indications recently as well that achieving herd immunity in certain places may be closer than we think. And in fact, that all these lockdowns may actually be extending the viability of the virus because rather than kind of ripping the Band-Aid off in one shot, exposing everybody to it, having people develop immunities to it, you're keeping people isolated from it so that they remain susceptible to it long term. And if you look at the case of Sweden, everyone likes to point at Sweden and say, oh, look, they didn't lock down and look how many deaths they've had. But they haven't had a second wave. And I've seen a few doctors arguing that Sweden has effectively achieved that herd immunity. And there's been plenty written about Sweden, so I'm not going to get into all the details of the demographics of people that were dying and all that. But it provides a reasonable case study for the argument that herd immunity can be achieved through natural exposure and that we might be much closer than everybody thinks. There was another study, which I think was done in Sweden, where they were comparing antibody tests against T-cell tests. So antibodies are effectively what identify a disease in your body. And the T-cells are sort of the hunter-killers that go down and actually destroy that disease. What the study found was that there are a lot of people who don't show as having antibodies, but who do have T-cells that are capable of fighting off the coronavirus. And that means that even though they don't show antibodies, they have immunity. And that that T-cell immunity is much more prevalent than was previously thought. So if you want to get conspiratorial and attribute things to malice, not just incompetence, then you could argue that keeping all these lockdowns in place is actually a way to prolong the viability of the virus in the population until the point when they can start selling vaccines to people. Uh-huh. And then at that point, even if it's natural herd immunity that gets rid of the virus, you know, they could say, oh, look, it was a vaccine that did it. You know? <laughs> right. All right. Well, I have an idea of what they can do with those 100 million doses of vaccines. I say if the government bought them, then the government can use them on themselves first and let us all know how that goes. <laughs> So this is a pretty long episode. We get into a lot of details here with Goshi and Joe. What we realized as we started talking about it was that before we could really say anything meaningful about it, that we first had to teach people everything about HVAC systems, and then we had to teach them everything about the biomechanics of airborne infectious diseases. So we jump around a little bit here, but we cover a lot. We go into a lot of details in a number of different areas. I think we got some good answers out of this in terms of what the range of risks might be out there. But again, this is all still emerging science. And so if nothing else, I think that we're giving people a frame of reference here with which they can start to understand and evaluate these issues and evaluate the risks to themselves or the kids if they're sending them back to school. To give a quick summary of some of the topics we hit on here, we talk about the mechanics of particles spreading in the air, and there's a difference if they're in still air versus turbulent air. We talk about strategies for managing airborne infections within the HVAC system, like filtration and ventilation air, as well as some more kind of outside-of-the-box solutions like UV lights and room air purifiers. We dug into a couple of studies that were out there. One in particular was a study that was done in a restaurant where they had a diagram of the HVAC airflows in the room, and they showed who was infected based on where one person who was in the room uh, had been sitting. And I mentioned earlier this Wells-Riley equation. Uh, We actually plugged some numbers in and came up with a chart 
where we could talk about the probability of airborne infection in a room. If you're in a room with somebody else who is infected, how does that probability of infection change for you depending on things like the time of exposure and the number of air changes within that room? Then we get into some nuts and bolts of looking at actual school buildings. One thing that Goshi and Joe do in their day jobs is they've actually been going into schools and evaluating their HVAC systems specifically for this reason, to try to understand what these schools can do to improve their capabilities to deal with airborne infection. And as we'll talk about, there are some schools that seem to be set up pretty well for this, and there are some schools that are not. So we talk about some things that parents can be asking their schools about what their capabilities are within the school facilities so that they can hopefully make it some kind of judgment on their own about what the risk is of sending their kid into that school building for eight hours. And finally, we ask the all-important question of masks. What can they do and what can't they do? And we're going to have some differences of opinion there. By the way, I mentioned I was just up at my neighbor's fire pit cooking some s'mores, and I can tell you from experience that it is very difficult to blow out a marshmallow that's on fire if you have a mask on. You just got to get it closer to your mouth. It's a paper mask, right? <laughs> And of course, the cherry on top of this thing is the crack pottery that Joe brings out at the end of this, where he's not necessarily saying that we should spray children with COVID, but he's not saying we shouldn't. I'm just following the science. You'll hear throughout this episode, we reference a lot of scientific papers. There are some visuals that we discuss. And if you go onto our show notes page at anarchitecturepodcast.com slash 32, you'll find a list of definitions of all the jargon that we use throughout this thing as well as our usual detailed show notes with links to all of the articles and studies that we've discussed, as well as some pictures of the charts and other images that we discuss throughout the episode. Here's our interview with Goshi King and Joe Green from the Engineering Tech Podcast. Goshi and Joe, thank you for uh, joining us on An Architecture Podcast. You're welcome. Thank you for uh, having us on. I've been thinking about this issue for the last couple of weeks. My kids have been getting some notices from their school about possible plans to reopen this fall. And as I started thinking about it, I started thinking back to some of my experience in, in healthcare design and thinking about infection control things that we do in hospitals to try to control and manage um, infection control within and between spaces in hospital facilities. And as I started thinking about the risks of COVID, I started wondering what schools might be doing or what they should be doing to try to mitigate that risk in school buildings as well. But I don't know how much of a problem this really is, and there's a lot that goes into this. The big question that's out there right now on the medical side of things is whether or not COVID can be transmitted via aerosols, essentially as an airborne infection. The leading theories on it right now are that this is primarily transmitted by droplets. And we're going to talk, we'll get into the details about what's the difference between a droplet and an aerosol. But it seems like people are saying that droplets are the main way this is getting transmitted. There was some concern about surface spread of it, which I think is still a concern, but that seems to be not as prevalent or not as much of a concern as it was maybe when this thing first started. It seems like a lot of the directions that have come out from the CDC and from state agencies and the WHO and others have really been focused on ways to mitigate the risk from a droplet spread of COVID. But there are some other scientists that are coming out now who are starting to look at this whole body of work around the potential for airborne transmission of this disease, which means that it's not just spreading. It's not like you just have these droplets that come out and they go six feet and then they're gone, which is what the six foot social distancing is all about. 
with airborne transmission, there's a risk that you could have smaller particles that stay in the air much longer and get spread throughout the room more like a gas and can accumulate in the room over time. Well, I think that is like ASHRAE, which is the American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, Air Conditioning Engineers. They recently posted, like I think they sent a letter to WHO, that it is more or less like an airborne disease. It Hold can on be... a second. They did no such thing. Okay, so they did that, right? Yeah. But based on what we know, based on at least what I read recently, it's based on 280-some letters that they received from scientists who said we should look at it as airborne or something like that. You know, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what they wrote, but it's not like the, some studies come out and it says absolutely 100% it is. No, I guess it's that Right, so I think the ASHRAE is being cautious mm -hmm. to put it out to say, okay, it is a possibility. So the, the words that they've used is possibility. Yeah. They didn't necessarily say that it is. So, you know, I don't want to play the word game. I don't want to freak out everybody out there who's listening to these podcasts or, you know, Astra people or, you know, Dr. Anthony Fauci and then go hide in caves because it's a possibility right now. We don't know. There's no study that's kind of come out and said it. You know, I'm not saying that it's not a possibility either. I'm just saying, like, right now, it's not definite. Yeah, and there was an open letter by a handful of scientists that was sent to, I think it was sent to the WHO about this, where they were arguing that the airborne pathway should be considered a risk and that there should be some precautions taken to protect against that in certain environments. Again, that's nothing final, but there have been a series of studies out there looking at that. And, you know, like anything else, this is all very much emerging science. And so right, right. there's debate back and forth. And it's really just a question of for everybody involved, whether you're the medical professionals or people coming in deciding how you're going to use different spaces. Yeah, and there have been some specific cases where it seems like spreading events have occurred via aerosol. Like there was one where there was some choir practice and they were all doing the social distancing thing. I'm not sure if they had masks on or not, but they were in a room together for two hours. And of course, like one person had it. And then following that, there was like 13 of them had it. And really the best explanation for how it spread was via aerosol. And even the WHO, even though they've said, oh, we don't think aerosol is a big risk, they have said if you're in an enclosed space for a long period of time, it may be a possibility or something like that. So they've kind of left it open from events like this choir one. There was another one where there was a case in a restaurant, I think in Italy somewhere, where it made sense if it was spread by aerosol, that that's how it would have spread. You know, I'm just going to be a devil's advocate. I'm no scientist when it comes to, you know, actually no one has to be because the particles could be so small, you know, you can't really physically see them. So you have to hypothesize in a choir situation as well as the restaurant situation and say, well, everybody was social distancing and it's still spread. So six feet didn't quite work. But who's to say that the person who was affected, you know, grabbed onto a doorknob, for example, or, you know, like table corner or like a chair, you know, often like the restaurant etiquettes, you kind of drag a chair for somebody else or something like that. You know, those things can happen, right? I uh, don't know how many people were affected that way, but there is a possibility in that direction as well. So it, it's not necessarily an evidence that states that, okay, you know what, this could be airborne. You know, I'm just playing devil's advocate. Believe me, guys, I'm with you. I just want to be bad guy here. Yeah, no, and I think what I want to do, I mean, obviously, if the scientists can't figure this out, then we're not going to figure it out on this podcast today. <laughs> but I think what I'd, how I'd like to approach this is to kind of move forward with the assumption or the hypothesis that airborne infection 
or airborne transmission could be a risk that this is a potential. Joe, get out of my house. <laughs> <laughs> I got my mask. <laughs> so, you know, let's kind of start there and just say, if that's the case, even if it is, maybe it's only a very small risk in certain situations. But let's just say, you know, if that's a risk, could this potentially be a problem? I, I specifically want to talk about school buildings because it's this interesting case where you have a group of people together in one space for a long period of time, which is exactly what you don't want with an airborne infectious disease. But so I wanted to just dig in, into that a little bit, kind of with that assumption. And we'll talk about some of the details of what the probabilities are of, of infection and things like that. But yeah, I think you're right. We should put the big caveat up front here that we're not arguing that this is definitely happening. <laughs> that is definitely an airborne thing. We're going to try to to put some numbers and probabilities to some stuff here based on some information that we found. But obviously, this is very speculative on our part. And we're just trying to to look at one particular risk that may be out there related to this disease. Yeah, yeah. Sounds great. I guess to that end, the first thing I really wanted to talk about here is the mechanics of airborne transmission of these virus particles. We talk about droplet transmission and airborne transmission like they're two separate things. But the reality is that all droplets are airborne particles are transmitted by air. So it's more of a, it's a continuum between these larger droplets and smaller droplets. And they basically draw this threshold at, I think it's 50 microns is what they use to say, you know, anything smaller than like 50 microns. And the microns is obviously, it's like a, was it a micrometer or something? Is it? Basically a millionth of a cubic meter, right? So pretty small. Oh, no, no, sorry, sorry. It's because it's the, the diameter. So it's a millionth of a meter diameter particle. I'm the one who moved to Australia specifically to use the metric system, so I should know this stuff. <laughs> You're not going to lure us into it either. <laughs> when we talk about this stuff, what you'll see out there is that this concern about droplet particles is that they can go, the number I've found is like three to seven feet. So that's talking about like a 100 micron droplet. This is kind of pretty well established. It's like that they actually figure out how big particles are by how long they're in the air for on some of these studies. And so the idea is that a hundred micron particle will go like three to seven feet. So that's what the like the six foot social distancing is all about, that when a particle leaves your mouth, that it's gonna go so far, you know, it starts dropping. Think of it as you're like spitting a spitball out of your mouth, right? It goes straight out and it starts dropping and drops down to the ground, eventually hits the ground and then it's no longer in the air. So these hundred micron particles, they're in the air for the number I have here is five point eight seconds and they go three to seven feet in the air. So that's what the social distancing is all about. It's protecting from those droplet particles. You get down to, to 50 microns. I don't have the number here on how long they're airborne for, but it's more on the order of like minutes that these 50 micron particles, they're going to go a little farther, and they're going to be in the air a little bit longer. Or it might not be minutes. Maybe it's like 30 seconds or something like that, right? But it's this kind of exponential scale as these droplets, these particles get smaller, the time that they're in the air gets longer and longer, and obviously they go further from the source. So that's kind of the, those are the droplets that everyone's talking about. It's this kind of 50 to 100 micron size of these droplets. These things get produced, they can be produced just by breathing, by talking. And then obviously another aspect of this is that if you're coughing or sneezing, one term I found to describe this is that they become ballistic. And so they actually get projected farther from your mouth and that's where, you know, you're hearing some people nowadays saying, well, these, these things can actually spread like 27 feet or something from the source if you sneeze or if you cough. And so 
that's obviously another wrinkle in the social distancing thing is that is that if somebody sneezes, the sneeze in your face, obviously social distancing doesn't really matter um, at that point. And also, you know, some people have stronger lungs than the other. Well, true. So that's a, that's another. Oh, you mean to to push it out? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah, I think okay. Some people yeah. have, you know, if it's anybody sneezes like my father, just walk, <laughs> run away like quickly as possible because yeah. uh, he's got some lungs on him. Yeah. <laughs> well, the thing too with a sneeze and a cough too is is you know the faster it's coming out, the more particles are going to become aerosolized as opposed to coming out as big droplets. I mean, you probably get a lot of big big droplets as well. As you know, if you like sneeze on your hand, obviously you're getting a lot of big droplets on there. But it's also, you know, the faster it comes out, then the more it's going to kind of break up those particles as they as it goes through your airways and out through your nostril or mouth or wherever it comes out. So that's kind of the next step of this is that, you know, when you get below that 50 microns, now you're in this definition of aerosolized particles. So these are particles that are staying in the air for much longer. And again, yeah, Joe's right. There are two ways that these can be produced. One is, again, by breathing, talking, coughing. All that stuff produces these smaller droplets as well as the larger droplets. Or I should say these smaller aerosolized particles as well as the larger droplets. But they can also form by larger droplets evaporating. And one of the issues there is that the larger droplets might have more particles in them. And when they evaporate, that kind of becomes more concentrated as these things become smaller particles that are getting aerosolized. And so the aerosolized particles are starting to stay in the air much longer. The way that they describe this in the literature, there's kind of two ways. One is if you're in a room that has completely still air, right? The air is not moving at all, like, you, you know, like a laboratory kind of setting, right? And you spray these things out, then there's a predictable rate at which they fall down to the ground and hit the ground. So if you have like a 10 micron particle, that's going to be the air for about eight minutes, all right? If you go down to a three micron particle, that's going to be in the air for one and a half hours before it hits the ground in still air. If you get down to the level of like a one micron particle, it could be in the air for like 12 hours. <laughs> okay. This is that exponential curve I was talking about. And if you have one that's half of a micron, that's 0.5 microns, the number I have here, they can stay in the air for 41 hours. <laughs> okay. <laughs> before you would expect that it would hit the ground. That's with no air motion in, in the room at all, right? Of course, that doesn't describe any anywhere that anybody actually lives, right? Because in almost any space, you have some kind of turbulence in the air, especially in any kind of commercial or institutional building, you're going to have HVAC that's moving all that air around. What happens when you have turbulence in the air is that those time frames that I just mentioned, they tend to become a half-life of the particle. So in other words, that eight minutes that the 10 micron particle is in the air for, in a still room, in a turbulent room, what you can say is that after eight minutes, there will be only half as much of that same size particle within the room. And then after another eight minutes, there's only half as much as that half, and, and on and on and on. So it's kind of like this is like radiation and stuff like that, right? These radioactive uh, <laughs> stuff, they have these half-lives. So that's the way to think about it. The interesting thing there is that in still air, all the particles are expected to settle down after those eight minutes. Again, this is for a 10 micron particle. But then after that eight minutes, they're all gone, right? During that eight minutes, you have that full concentration of those particles within the room. But then after the eight minutes, you expect that they all hit the ground and they're gone. With turbulent air, where you're talking about a half-life of these things, they actually drop off quicker. 
So you get more things getting blown around and getting stuck to things within the room, getting stuck to the floor, getting stuck to walls or, or whatever else. And when these things hit a surface, they're no longer airborne. So that concentration drops a lot more quickly, but then that kind of flattens out and a smaller number of particles can stay in the air a lot longer as this half-life is kind of ticking down over a longer period of time. Did I explain that correctly as I'm talking to the HVAC engineers here? Am I <laughs> is that making sense? Yeah, it sounds actually very interesting. And we have you know, heard things in a similar realm of things. In fact, one of the things I wanted to bring up, because as you were mentioning, something that we, our office has done where we work, and we won't say our, the name of our company or who's done it, uh, but we have, this, so in our office, there has been a chart that has been developed. And the purpose of that chart and graph is to explain a perfect scenario, which is that these viruses of multiple size of microns is airborne. And you have a air conditioning system that's designed on, you know, IMC, ASHRAE ventilation standards. And it has a certain air change rate within the room. So under ideal condition, and that's also assuming that there is no air introduced into the room, whether it be recirculating or, you know, fresh air introduced, no more new viruses or any, you know, bad guys are coming in into the room. And how many minutes would it take to clean that room out? And it turns out that, you know, air change rates, Ashra, and, and I think I'll let Joe speak to that a little bit, uh, Joe Green, uh, on the two air change rates that is recommended by Ashra as a minimum, as a measure to clean out the spaces. But as you improve the air change rate in the room, you would, according to that chart that was developed in our office, you start to see that at anywhere between three and a half to four and a half, the percentage of cleanliness that you're looking for, like for say, around 85% or something like that, it takes about 30 minutes to clean that room. But again, that's assuming that the person who or a source that's contaminated the room is no longer there. And then the air that's being reintroduced into the room is clean, like it's filtered. Something else to keep in mind, and that air change rate does not mean that the entire air is fresh air. It's still mixed air, just filtered. So along those lines, there is something that we can share with you guys to say, you know, and I can probably uh, talk about it a little more. I actually have it open here. There are a couple of charts that were developed, and one of them was like, you know, minimum time required to remove 99% of viruses versus 95% of viruses. And the one that's 95% uh, of viruses is, I think, more appropriate because the the type of, you know, HVAC filters you can incorporate into your systems are kind of like, for example, MERV-16, according to the MERV charts, is about 95% effective when the micron levels are less than 0.3. And MERV-15, 14, and 13 are roughly 90% for microns that are between 0.3 and 1. Right, Joe? Mm. Am I saying that right? Sounds right to me. Okay. Yep. So considering that the 95% removal, if we were to follow that route, if your air change per hour is around three and a half, it would take 40 minutes to clean that room. And then if you're at five, that's about 30 minutes. And then as you're increasing the air change, the curve is now sort of like flat. So from five to 10, the only difference you need is like from 30 to 20 minutes. So it's 10 minute different to clean the air about 95%. Uh, does that make sense, guys? Yeah, it does. Um, let me just restate some of that to make sure that everybody followed along. Let me make sure I understand these numbers. You said 3.5 to 4.5, is that air changes per hour? Correct. 
Okay. So what Goshi is saying is that you have a room, you have HVAC that's pulling air out of the room and blowing fresh or filtered air, right, back into the room? The combination of the both. So the, the fresh air is what's recommended by, you know, for example, an office. Office only requires like 5 CFM per person and uh, 0.06 CFM per square foot for an office setting. So if, you know, if you had a 100 square feet office and you were delivering, say, 100 CFM total air into that room, we could probably do a quick math and see what the air changes would be at, a, at you know, at an 8-foot ceiling. Say if your ventilation rate was like 10 CFM and a total 100 CFM, and then, you you know, the recirculated air had 90% filtered air and a 10% fresh air from outside. And if this happens to be a, a five, you know, air change hours, then to clean this room, it would take about 30 minutes. And to accomplish that, what you would do is like, say, if you're, if, if this is an office or a classroom or something like that, you would start a cleanup. You, you would do a purge sequence early on before the school even starts and maybe like you started you know the air handling system a couple hours before the school starts based on you know how big some of the other spaces are and how long it would take to clean those because not every room will have the same air change rate some of them will have more some of them will have less and it's all dependent on the type of the space spaces where you have like a lot of occupants you tend to have greater air flows the spaces like offices and you know Primarily offices, you have lesser airflow because their occupants are uh, a lot less. But if it's an office that's kind of like an open concept, it's going to be greater than just a one-person office. So the air change rate in there will be higher. So an HVAC engineer would look at that and say, okay, you know what? They'll do the analysis and say, okay, we need to do an early start, maybe two-hour or three-hour. In some cases, if the systems are too bad, run the whole system 24-7, right? Like that's also a possibility. Joe, you want to chime in a little bit? Uh, sure. Where did that screw up? <laughs> I think you have it pretty good. I guess, yeah, like you were saying, I mean, the whole point would be to keep the air change moving, keep outside air or clean air at least coming in. What we're seeing, and like you mentioned, you can either improve your filters or you could just bring in more outside air. Obviously, with existing buildings, you don't always have the capabilities to bring in more outside air. So your options might be to increase filters, which... Even that, what we're finding, some existing buildings cannot handle a substantial filter upgrade, either because of the size of the new filters are much thicker. You need, instead of just one or two inches, you need more space. Then also, with the better filtration, you need more fan power to push air through. That's right. So you almost get, like, some existing school, they might not have the actual means just to do a swap. It might be a whole unit replacement. Yeah, I want to add a little bit to that. We're probably getting into a little bit of too much weeds, but I think it's the right time for me to chime in. So, for example, if you have an air handler system that might be serving a single space or a multiple space, it may have, you know, may have been designed for a certain type of filter. Older the system, the likelihood of the filter rack that's in there is just generic or, you know, like somewhere around MERV 8. And we can talk about the MERV ratings as well, just to introduce our audience and what that means and, you know, yeah, just sorry, Goshi, just to interrupt. The MERV ratings is basically the higher you go, the more it's filtering the air. That's exactly right. I can explain a little bit. So obviously, just like Tim just mentioned, that MERV filters have a rating, and they're rated for how much filtration they do and the size of particles. Just to give a general idea, in today's HVAC design, most engineering firm, I don't know if it's code or not, you could probably confirm that, Joe, but MERV 8 is a standard that is almost always in air handlers. And MERV 8 
is only effective about 20 to 25 percent on a good day when the micron size is between 0.3 and 1. Which is what viruses tend to be, is that right? Because viruses are smaller than bacteria, which are smaller than mold. and From what we know, yes. Right, right. So just to, this is all great. I want to back up a little bit just to give a little more big picture view for people who aren't familiar with these types of systems. So just like the five-year-old description of this, you know, in a building you have some kind of an air handling unit, which is basically, it's got a fan in it. It's got some coils in it that are maybe exchanging a fluid with a condensing unit or something outside that can be cooling that off. Or you could have a furnace or a boiler in there that's bringing hot water into it. And so this air handler, it's basically you got a fan on one end. You've got something that makes the air cold that the fan is blowing air across. You've got something that makes the air hot that it could be blowing across. Obviously, those usually aren't working at the same time. And then it goes out from there into your ductwork. The ductwork branches off and delivers it into various rooms in the building. And then you have other ductwork, which are return ducts, where the air moves around in the, within the space in the building. Then it gets pulled back up into the return air ducts, back through that ductwork, back to the other side of the air handler, through the filter, and then hits the fan again, and it starts all over. And the other piece of this is that you're going to have some percentage of air that's recirculating. So it's as I just described, it's going from the air handler into the room and back to the air handler, and then getting recirculated. But some percentage of that air might be exhausted to the outside, and then you're going to pull some air in from the outside so that you're mixing in fresh air with the air that's getting circulated around your building. So there are different percentages for different buildings of how much of that outside air you want to be bringing in. But basically, the way that you're controlling air quality within the building is two means. One is by filtration, and one is by bringing in outside air so that you're mixing fresh air in with some proportion of recirculated air within the room, okay? Did I nail that, guys? That's exactly <laughs> right. And there's a caveat to that a little bit. Sometimes you have air handling systems that are 100% outside air systems. And I'll give you a quick example. For example, if you had a high school and it had a part of the area that was strictly, you know, like gymnastic, gymnasiums, maybe like wrestling room, a lot of lockers. Like you say, if you had, you had a hockey ice arena or something like that, then it is very likely that all the spaces that are sort of like wet spaces or like sweaty spaces, the system will be designed so it'll be almost 100% outside air system. So what happens is you bring the outside air in, you run it through the first filter, then it goes through an energy recovery wheel. And the, the way that works quickly is that the return air that's coming back from the building is warmer, and this is in the summer, and the one that's coming from the outside is coming so it crosses through the wheel and energy exchange so the air temperature is dropped on the incoming air so if it was 90 degree out by the time it goes through the wheel it may be at 67 degrees or something like that so you gain some quality so that you don't have to cool that 90 degree air anymore now you have to only cool like 68 or 70 degree air so the amount of chill water or dx you know like a refrigerant type of cooling system you may have you need less energy to cool so it's kind of like a free exchange that you get. But anyway, so on a 100% outside air system, most of the time, especially on a bigger system, you still have some cross-contamination, especially if that wheel, the energy wheel that's spinning within the air handler, there is cross-contamination that's happening because, you know, wheel is spinning, right? And there's leakages around the gaskets. There's potentially a chance of 5%, up to 5% leakage that the return air can just, without going getting filtered or you know exhausted it can mix into the wheel and then come back in 
And to then stop that, typically we don't have filters downstream. You have one in the return side, but you have one upstream of the wheel. But then now with COVID situation, now everybody is rethinking that. So even 100% outside air systems could be a little bit contaminated. So how do we, how do we control that part? And that's when existing systems sometimes fall short because they just don't have room to insert a new filter in. And you don't need anything scary. You don't need anything big. But, you know, a MERV 13 or 14 probably is all you need for a 100% outside air system. However, that's not the case, in my opinion, when you have a mixed air system like how Tim was earlier describing, where only portion of the air is fresh air, but most of the air is still recirculated air that's ringed through the filter. Does that make sense, guys? Yeah, and just to, I'll just restate that a bit. What you were saying with the energy recovery, this is air that you're, when you have 100% outside air coming in, you have to take all the air that's coming back to the unit, that then gets exhausted out of the building. And so you don't want to waste all that heat. That's warm air that's in the building, but you're recirculating it because you got to keep, you got to keep that air moving. You increase the temperature of that heat, that uh, air that's returning from the rooms uh, by taking it from the outside air. Like, you know, that, that return air that's uh, coming back is at 75 degree. And then on a design day, for example, in Boston, the design day is like 90 degrees, right? And a 90 degree air, when it's go it goes through wheel, it transfers its heat you know, 10, 15 degrees into the room air, and then the room air is exhausted at, you know, a higher, say, 90 degree. But the fresh air temperature has dropped to, for demonstration purposes, dropped to 70, for example. So now you need less energy to cool it further down. You need to cool it further down to, say, about around 55 degrees so that when it reaches the occupants, they feel the nice and cool air. Right, right. So these air handling systems, obviously, they can get pretty complicated. And when you start messing around with things like filtration and the percentage of outside air and turning the energy recovery on and off, then they can start to have problems, right? Before we move on, can I, I just want to ask one more kind of technical question. When we talk about these air change rates, I'm just wondering, what is a typical air change rate for different types of rooms, you know, for an office building or a school or something like that? What's sort of a standard air change rate that you'd normally see? I would have to just take a wild guess that six air changes is fairly common like for offices just for a idea so every 10 minutes you're turning over the air in that room the calculation there is based on the, the reason why joe is not coming right out and saying it's this is that the way you guys do the numbers on this stuff it's based on the number of occupants and it's based on the use of the space. And there's a lot of factors that go into calculating essentially the, the cubic feet per minute that you're, of air that you're pumping into the room. So you're not necessarily looking at air change rate as the target, the thing that you're targeting. But at the end of the day, you end up getting this certain air change rate based on all those other factors that get factored in. Well, certain type of spaces do require a certain, like as a good practice for HVC engineer. Like, for example, like toilets and locker rooms. We're always looking for 10 or higher. And lobbies as well, like you're somewhere around there. You know, you always have a higher air change rate, especially where there is more people gathering. So you need more fresh air and, you know, the more the people, more heat rejection from body and sweat. Like there's a thing called, you know, sensible and latent heat gain from people. So when you have more people, you need more cooling. That means you need more air to cool the space. And then if you need more air, that automatically, you know, proportionally is increasing the air change through the room. So the cubic feet per minute of the air that you're going to dump into a space is increasing. And that does go into the equation and usually helps out. I guess another detail here, 
is that when we talk about cubic feet per minute, the higher volume you have, so the higher cubic feet per minute you have going into a room, basically means the bigger the ducts need to be because there's a certain point at which air going through a duct and especially going through a vent creates noise. And so for an office building, you could be blasting air through there like a wind tunnel, but obviously that's not going to be very conducive <laughs> to doing work. That's a very good point. And, you know, oftentimes an HVAC engineer, at least lately, they're usually on good projects, good sizable projects. Like, for example, if you're, if you're making a school, which is a lot of what we do, an HVC engineer would keep that in mind. So when they're deciding the ductwork, they are going to make all those considerations. So the ductwork that will be supplying air into a particular office, it will be a low pressure drop and a lot of slow down velocity. And the way we size diffusers, diffuser is a device that's usually located in a ceiling or on a wall, which air comes out from. And that we usually size it so that by the time it hits the occupant, the moving air is somewhere around 50 feet per minute. So they feel, they don't feel draft. If it's around 100 feet per minute, we'll feel draft. If it's less than 50 feet per minute, the room will get stale. So an HVAC engineer looks at that and it says, my ceiling is a 10 foot high. My occupant chair is over there. How far do I need to locate this diffuser and how do I need to, and how, you know, and air is determined by the cooling load requirements of the space, right? And then if there is a problem, for example, if we needed more air for some reason, it could be like a dresser room where there's a lot of like hair dryers that are going at the same time and some like curling irons that are sitting there for two hours or something like that, right? You have a lot of heat gain there. You obviously then would have more air that you need to cool that space. What that means is that now an HVAC engineer may need to incorporate some sound attenuators in the ductwork to control the noise issue. So yeah, the HVAC engineer will always be looking at that. Now, if you have an existing building and you're trying to push more air through an existing ductwork, you're absolutely right, Joe. You may run into noise issues. Yeah, so does that set sort of an upper limit on how much you can increase the amount of air changes or, or the amount of volume that you're blowing into a room? That's right. Let me ask you another question related to the air changes. In healthcare design, in hospitals, this is one area where they actually do specify certain air change rates. So to give some examples of what you might have in a hospital space, for an operating room, which is where you want you know, a lot of fresh air, you really want to keep that air pure so that you don't have any kind of infections coming through the air for a patient who's on the operating table. I think this was from the CDC, but I've seen these, these type of guidelines in healthcare design guidelines books as well. But this is saying that like for an operated room, you want to have, they give two numbers here. There's a total air change per hour. They say 15 air changes per hour. That's for an operating room. But then they also say minimum air changes of outdoor air per hour is three. Okay. So they're actually calling for a certain amount of, of air changes going through the room, but then only three air changes that are, or, you know, the proportion of outside air, I guess, to air in the space might only be three. So when we say I think what we've been talking about so far with these air changes per hour, I think we want to be clear that, that in some cases we're talking about a certain percentage of outside air that we're bringing in, but then you could also be talking about just that air recircling within a room to refresh and help to temper the room. Did I get that right? You did. So when we were mentioning earlier, you know, the, all the air change rates that included outside air. So there was a portion of air that was outside air, and then there was a portion of air that was filtered air. And typically in an HVAC design, that's how you would look at it. Now, oftentimes you do have instances where you have a building that's uh, designed not as a 100%, you know, the air is not designed so that all of the air is coming from a one big air handler that's sitting on a roof or in a mechanical room somewhere. 
you only have fresh air coming into the room. And then sometimes you can have scenarios where the actual cooling load of the space are handled by, for example, chill beams or fan coil units that are local to the space. And they're also contributing to the air change rate in the room, but that's it's kind of like an indirect way. They tend to have filters as well, but not as great of a filters that you would find in HVC uh, air handling units that are sitting on the rooftop or in a you know a mechanical yard or in a mechanical room. So there is a little nuance there as well that that sometimes can be tricky room to clean. Well, I think this is good. I'm glad we talked about this first because I wanted to, what I want to do with this is with this understanding of how these systems work, to start to talk about what that could potentially mean for the spread of airborne infection. Because obviously when you start moving air around, when you do have a space that has some kind of airborne infection in it, there can start to be some benefits of that and there can also be some risks of that. Obviously some of the benefits are the things we've talked about. By moving air through the space, you have the opportunity to filter it. You have the opportunity to introduce outside air and and get the bad stuff out of the building. Some of the problems you can have or challenges you can have is that, for one thing, with the air in the space, I guess you need to think about two kind of frames of reference here. One would be looking at a single room. Let's say it's a school. Let's say it's a classroom. To make the math easy, let's say you've got 10 kids in that classroom, right? And, you know, in our current paradigm, maybe there's one kid in there that has COVID and that could be asymptomatic and could potentially be putting some virus into the air. And again, we're starting with the assumption here, as we said at the beginning, that maybe this is a possible means of transmission, but we're not saying necessarily that that's the case. But let's just say for the purposes of discussion that if you have somebody in the room who is shedding the virus and putting virus particles into that space, they're becoming airborne. There are a couple things that happen with the air systems. One is that you're going to have air moving around within that room so that those particles are getting distributed throughout the room and the smaller the particles get, the more they start to behave kind of like a gas that's going to fill the room rather than individual particles that are moving on certain trajectories. So that's one risk or one thing to look at is is what happens within that room. And then the second risk is what happens when this air gets pulled back up into the ductwork and is now circulating back through the air handler and back through the rest of the ductwork and possibly being distributed to other spaces within the building. And historically, I know there have been some examples of things like measles getting spread from one room to another within a building through the air handling system. So that's kind of where I want to, that's kind of the introduction here is what I want to talk about. What I want to do is drill a little further down into kind of the mechanics of the transmission of these things. Looking into all this stuff, there were a few interesting studies I found, but one in particular, the lead author on this last name is Buonanno, I think he's Italian. B-U-O-N-A-N-N-O. The name of the study is Estimation of Airborne Viral Emission, Quanta Emission Rate of SARS-CoV-2 for Infection Risk Assessment, which sounds like a really dry, you know, virologist kind of type of study. But what they did in this study is they're trying to come up with a method for figuring out if you have somebody who has COVID in a space, there's a couple questions they're trying to answer here. The first one is, how much of the virus are they emitting? in a way that could potentially be infectious, whether that's through droplets or whether it's airborne. So that's what this, there's this, this word quanta. What that describes is it's a unit for our dose of virus particles, so a certain number of virus particles, 
that are expected to cause an infection. And they say it's expected to cause an infection in 63% of people. So this is kind of acknowledging that different people have different susceptibility to it, but it's this unit of measure of any given virus that says, if someone's producing this much of this virus, we expect that that amount of virus is somebody inhales it or whatever, could potentially cause an infection. So just to clarify too, they don't know how many actual virus particles would make up this quanta. How many actual virus particles do you have to get to be considered an infectious dose? So the way they've done it in this article is they've just kind of said, we'll assume that there's this quanta, which is X number of particles. And the way that they've qualified that is that just whatever number it happens to be that causes this many people to get sick. So the paper isn't really dependent on knowing some exact number of this many virus particles gets you sick. Yeah, and I should say that when you start getting into this stuff, people who have COVID and who have been infected and are shedding it, they're all over the map in terms of the actual quantity of virus, you know, the viral load that they're producing, whether that's airborne or through droplets or whatever. When people have tried to measure this stuff, like how much does a sick person produce, it's all over the map. So some people can be putting out a lot of virus, some people who are infected might not be putting out that much. It can be different for different phases of the disease, you know, if you're five days in or, or 10 days in or whatever. Yeah, so to say, like, this is the dose you need of COVID, whatever, to get it, like, obviously those numbers are all over the map. But, you know, it stands to reason that there's some number out there that could be used as this quanta value to start to describe what dose of this virus that somebody's putting out might be infectious. So that's kind of the first part of this study. We're trying to come up with some idea of how many particles are getting put out there. The reason we want to figure that out is because once you do that, once you have this number, this quanta, there's a formula you can plug that into where you're looking at the quanta produced of the virus. Okay, so how much of the virus is somebody who's sick in that room producing? You're looking at the breathing rate of other people in the room who might be susceptible. So people who don't have the infection. Obviously, if they're exercising or something, they're going to be breathing more or less, right? So they're looking at that as a variable. And then they're also looking at the ventilation within the room, because when you start to look at the probabilities here of somebody getting infected in a space, the ventilation rate within the room, which is these air changes per hour we're talking about, become very critical. It can make the difference between a 60% infection rate or a 0.1% infection rate, depending on the number of air changes you have within the space. And so there's this formula they have in here called the Wells-Riley equation, where basically they're saying you plug in the numbers for the quanta that you think somebody's producing in the room, the breathing rate, and the ventilation rate, the number of air changes within that room. And then that gives you a probability of what the risk of infection is for anybody else within that space. Okay. Does that make sense? Yep. And I should say that this equation, this isn't something that this study is making up. This is, I think, a pretty well accepted and well established equation that's used in these kinds of discussions. They're trying to come up with a way to apply it to the COVID question, say, if we can figure out what this quanta is, what does that tell us about certain situations? Because they then go from there to look at like a scenario in a restaurant or a scenario in a bank or a supermarket, and they think about the amount of time that people are spending in these spaces. And then, you know, if you make these assumptions about the quanta of viruses people are producing, then we would expect that with this ventilation rate, that you're going to have this risk of getting infected, okay? So you plug all this stuff in, and it gives you a probability of somebody in that space coming down with the infection. Did you mention that the time spent in the room is a factor? Oh, I didn't. Thank you. Yeah, that's obviously a very important factor. 
as well. Mm -hmm. If you're in a space for 10 minutes versus an hour versus eight hours, that's a big factor as well. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, I mean, if we're going to assume, yeah. Joe Green, yep. <laughs> that uh, if you know it is airborne and it's and you know what's important here is something that we probably can discuss about the ventilation system too, like where the grills are located. There are several ways that air can move through the room, right? It could be a high distribution of air that's dumped in one corner of the room and it picked up on the other. So the idea is that the air is kind of like scooping through the room from one corner to the other, right? And what happens when it's hitting an affected person who's breathing all that, you know, and then quanta is right in the air, and then everybody behind it is catching it, right, and breathing it in and out of the building, you know, that's, I think the answer is pretty obvious to that, that, you know, oh my God, right? But at the same time, that doesn't mean, at least in COVID case, you could have breathed it in and you still may not show symptoms or you may just have a high fever and some, you know, similar symptoms for a couple of days and then you're on the other side because your immune system's kind of like fought it and you're over it, right? So that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody is like in life danger, but then again, the people who may have asthma or some other underlying conditions, whatever is out there, it could be dangerous to them. And I feel like at this stage, and correct me if I'm wrong, any of you guys, if you feel like, you know, there is someone, if you have a child or if you're a teacher or if your spouse is a teacher, for example, or, you know, a staff member who may be, if there is enough scientific evidence available or medical evidence available that this COVID could be fatal to them, don't send it to them. I mean, I'm, I'm a libertarian. Don't, don't send them to schools, period. Just homeschool the suckers, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, COVID's at least your problem. That's like the best thing they could get at a school, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Jumping back to your point about the air circulating, you know, the fact that we talk about these air changes in a room, it's not like the air is just uniformly changed in the room. It comes in through one vent and out through another vent on the other side of the room. So you're right, there's this sort of current flowing through the room. There was actually one case that's been studied where I think there was a restaurant in, I want to say Italy? It was in China. Okay, where there was this, there was one guy that was infected sitting at a table and something like 13 people got infected within the restaurant, you know, over, a, over the hour period or two hour period that he was at that restaurant. And what's interesting is that they mapped out where each person was actually sitting within the restaurant. And it shows a pretty clear bias that people who are sort of downwind of him, you know, the way that the air was blowing through, were much more affected by it than people upwind of him. So that does sort of, it does two things. For one thing, it gives evidence that there is airborne transmission of this thing, even if it's over, you know, certain short distances within enclosed spaces. But it also kind of confirms the point that you just made that, look, it's not like there's these uniform air changes. There's actually currents that you need to sort of consider as to where the air is blowing and who it hits first and who it hits last. It's the sort of thing that if you were able to know who had the COVID, it's like you put him right next to the return duct. <laughs> you know, you sit over there. Uh, you know, of course, if you actually knew someone had COVID, you just tell them to stay home. It'd be interesting to know, like in that study, obviously I haven't read that study, and uh, maybe you guys have, and see if that person who had affected the 10 people in the restaurant, was he asymptomatic or was he clearly had some like, you know, runny nose and coughing and whatever, you know, fever and We've all been in the situation where, you know, we've had fever and our date was set a month ago and we decided to just go anyway. So we went to the restaurant with 100 degree fever and we ate and pretended that everything was fine, right? That happens, right? Especially when you're young. What happens in schools is, is you know, your kid wakes, not my kid, but some people's 
guy I know has, you know, might have a kid that wakes up with a fever and the parent might give him a little ibuprofen in the morning and put him on the bus. (laughs) And then then at 12 o'clock, they get a call from the nurse saying, oh, he came down with a fever. Why don't you come pick him up? (laughs) That has been known to happen in some cases. And, you know, hopefully with this COVID thing, that'll be something people are a little more uh, cautious about. I'll talk to my friend about that. See, I think you have more hope than I do because, you know, I come from third world countries and, you know, America, Australia is different, right? Like we have this, I guess we're more educated. I don't, I don't want to sound like condescending to third world countries because that's not my intent here, but ground realities are different, right? So in America, at least say what you will about media. I hate it as much or television. I don't even have a cable, but at least here, maybe a little more informed and, you know, we, we have these discussions and, you know, and, and in some parts of the world, forget it, you know, man, to just kid wakes up and the mom says get out of here you know so i hear you (laughs) well sorry i got a little off track there but i did want to say about that restaurant study what's interesting is that i've seen people argue looking at that study i've seen people on one side argue that that proves that there is no aerosol spread because the study authors actually said that they you know they didn't find any evidence of particles i think on the air return for the hvac unit whatever investigations they did around aerosols within the space they didn't find it And they were hypothesizing, I think the authors of the study were suggesting that they thought this was actually droplet spread and that the droplets were just being moved by the airflow within that space. And so they're saying, I think part of the argument was that half of the restaurant, these people got it, and the other half of the restaurant, the same open space, nobody got it. And so I think they were saying that if this was an airborne thing with aerosolized particles, again, there would be more of an even spread of these gases, let's say, of of airborne particles spreading a little more evenly within the room. So I've seen, I've seen some people argue that that study showed that there wasn't significant airborne transmission, but then other people have taken the same study and said, look at airborne transmission, air blows this way, these guys get sick. That's airborne transmission. So this is where the controversy comes from. I could see like if the guy was right by the supply and then all the sick people were by your return, you could kind of make an assumption that majority of his air went by all these people and that's why they got sick. But you're right though, it's an assumption and just, I mean, who really knows? He could have walked back and forth a couple of times. They could be on the way to the restroom and he just drank a lot of water and went a lot of times. Could have been that he went to the bathroom and a lot of those people went to the bathroom and then yeah. he affected them. No, they actually, I guess he had video of this restaurant and they kind of track what this guy was actually doing in this space. And they said, that's why people look at this as a pretty good study because they didn't have that. They didn't see a lot of like interaction between these people where they were getting close to each other or where they were as you said, touching the same surfaces and things like that. I guess they, they kind of ruled that out to a large extent in the study. So it does seem to be, it's again, the debate between droplets, aerosols, and again, it's a continuum. It's not a black and white thing between the droplets and the aerosols. Yeah. I almost want to look at the diffuser layout, right? Yeah. And the air movement, you know. Oh, they, they drew that up in the in the study. Yeah, they had a oh, graph. Man. Oh, yeah, I, it's, it's I kind of want to see that. All right, hold on. Let me pull it up here while we're talking about this. I want to get your interpretation of this. Oh, yeah, here we go. Yeah, no, it's great. And I've seen I've seen this reference in a lot of places. Yeah, while you guys are looking for that, I'll just I just want to say something. So the th- there's this sort of assumption with the aerosols that it acts like an ideal gas essentially, and once it comes out, it's essentially spread uniformly throughout the room. But of course, if you've got ventilation and airflow moving through a room, then that's going to disrupt that ideal spread of the aerosol anyways, you know, you're not going to get this uniform distribution throughout the room. I think it's yeah, it'll probably go everywhere. Like if someone at an office cooks popcorn or tuna or something like that in the microwave mm. you smell it all over yeah are you seeing this 
So where was he seated? Was he at A table? Yeah, let me explain this a little bit for the benefit of the listeners here. So we're looking at a layout of this restaurant. It's kind of like a square with a, a corner kind of cut out diagonally on it. And there's maybe, I don't know, 12 tables in this, uh, maybe 16 tables in this space. And six of them are up in this kind of upper part of the square. And then there's like, I don't know, eight more tables or so, 12 more tables down in the lower part. And so what they said is that nobody down that lower part got infected. They're just looking, zooming in on this upper portion up here. So then within that upper portion, there's an air conditioner. The way they draw it looks like a wall-mounted air conditioner kind of on the right-hand wall, right? That's blowing air across these three tables up along the upper wall here. To the left. Yeah, so it's blowing, It's uh, as I'm looking on the page. Yeah, see the follow the arrows. Yeah, blowing from right to left. And then they show a dotted line showing that some air is then returning back to that air conditioner. Sure. But then it's interesting, there is actually an exhaust fan on the other end of this as well, which is you know not uncommon in restaurants because you have kitchens that have you know all kinds of uh, exhaust and stuff in them. So anyway, so that's kind of the area they're focusing on. Down below, there's another air conditioning unit that's blowing air around that lower set of tables. And it looks like they're showing more of a kind of circular motion of the air there. So I wonder if that air by the circular motion is kind of buffering off and kind of pushing off some of the air from the upper unit up above. So maybe that's preventing some mixing. But anyway, that's kind of the layout of the room. And then as you go down, they zoom in on that upper portion with that air conditioner blowing left to right. Right to left. I'm sorry, right to left. And they show the six tables laid out. And so they had this guy sitting like at the middle table. And they had a handful of people around his table that got infected. They had three people on the table to the left of him that got infected. And then they actually had two people right by the air conditioner kind of on the other side, on the reverse side of the airflow from him that got it. But nobody at the tables down below them, that second row of tables down, nobody got it. So I've tried to explain as best I can. What do you guys think looking at this? What, what do you think is happening here? The virus is just dancing all around and going everywhere. Yeah, it just really is. It's kind of a neat how detailed they are. And Yeah, I mean, I, get, I think the question is, it's, I mean, it's obvious, like, yeah, you can understand how these people got infected. The question is, why didn't anybody else get infected at these other tables? I was just going to say that because aerosol, that air from that air handler is really moving, at least in that, including the other three tables. And it seems like they have drawn a circle where people were seated, right? Or is there a possibility that there was nobody seated there at the time? That's a good question. I'm not sure. I think because they don't show circles all the way around the tables, I think these are actually showing people. And so the yellow one is the guy who was infected, and then the red ones are guys, are people who got it. I can see the argument that people are making that it's not aerosol because uh, E and F otherwise should have been affected. Right. Because that air that's coming out of the air conditioner, there are two scenarios. Things that it's not clear is that sometimes you have these little fan coil units that are wall-mounted, right? They're like 8 feet or 9 feet above the floor, and sometimes they're floor-mounted. So the air is scooped usually at the bottom of the fan coil unit and is spit out on the top. So it makes like a whole U, to, you know, or, or like a full circle like this. Hot air is dumped up, but then cool air has a tendency to drop because it's heavier, so it just drops, right? So it provides cooling at the occupied zone, even though if it's discharged like that. And then the cooler air then starts to move back this way because the negative pressure right at the discharge of the fan coil unit, because of the velocities, a negative pressure is created. So that creates this like cyclone type of effect, right? And then the air moves like this. It's pretty cool. Just for the listeners, Gosha is sort of moving his hand in a sort of a vertical circular motion. Yes. 
It's like little eddies. All right. So yeah. So again, I think Goshi, I tended to agree with you that this seems like if this were an airborne infection, the way that we're talking about it, I would expect other people within that space to have picked it up. But again, one of the important factors here with airborne infection is time within the space and the ventilation rate. So this doesn't necessarily rule out airborne infection. You're in a restaurant, maybe people are here for an hour, but does that change potentially when you are in a room with other people for eight hours? I think so. I think that changes a whole lot. I think you're more prone to get it if you're in an environment where the virus is constantly present. Let's talk about schools, right, Tim? Like, for example, in New Hampshire or Maine, if kids are in a room and it's a classroom of 18 kids, you know, between the periods, kids are going to get up. You know, they're going to go talk to their buddies and so forth. They're going to be moving about for eight hours. They're going to be picking up books and dropping and bathroom breaks and whatnot. I feel like if we were to follow this hypothesis, there is a potential that within a day, pretty much all kids are affected. Yeah, they'd all be exposed, Yeah, more or less. Still doesn't mean that that, especially considering the success rate for recovery on children, is almost 100%, which is good news for children at least. But they may not be such a good news for their elderly, you know, 85-year-old grandparents. Right. There is a way to at least try to evaluate this, or at least try to give some context to it, to the risk here. We mentioned this equation from that other study that we were looking at. So um, I tasked Joe with putting a chart together, comparing different air change rates and stuff within, a, let's say, a 400-square-foot space, which might be a, the size of a classroom, and looking at different time periods and then different air change rates per hour. And again, this is by no means saying that this is what it is, but we took the values that they used in that Buonanno study, those assumptions, and tried to see if we could come up with something that made sense and that told us something meaningful about what was going on. I'm not going to describe all the, uh, the different variables that we used as assumptions here, but we'll put them in our show notes in case anybody really wants to dig into it and kind of critique our work here. But again, we were just basing this off of the numbers that were used in that study as we understood them. I will say that things like the quanta rate, remember that the amount of infectious virus that somebody might be putting out per hour, those numbers can be all over the map. So for example, if somebody's just breathing at rest, the quanta might be like 10, okay? But if somebody is speaking, that quanta might be 320, all right? And then obviously, if you have some kind of light activity, if you're moving around, if you're walking, if you're obviously, if you're exercising, that's going to go up because it's, I think, somewhat proportional to essentially to your breathing rate. And that can also change based on, again, how, as we said, different people have different viral loads that they're shedding. So these assumptions can be all over the map. The numbers can be all over the map. So we use a pretty low assumption here of what that quanta would be. So what we're looking at here is we have a chart where the x-axis going across the bottom is the amount of time you're spending in a room. And this is assuming that someone who's infected as well as the other people who are susceptible are all in the room for the same amount of time, okay? There are some other equations to sort that out if somebody leaves the room, but we're not going to get into that here, obviously. So this kind of looks at a situation where you have a classroom. Let's say there's one kid in that room who is contagious with COVID. And then going up the grid here, we have the probability of exposures. This is going from 0% up to 100%. So this is the probability that somebody else within that room is going to get an infection from that person who's shedding the virus. Again, with all the assumptions we stated before about whether or not this is an airborne disease. 
what we're showing here is that if you have close to zero air changes per hour, which is actually not even possible because it's hard to even get that low of air infiltration values through a building envelope. <laughs> I'll go to something like a half of an air change per hour. Does that seem reasonable, guys, as a kind of a baseline yeah, starting if, point? Yeah, if you have an like, infiltration in the building, you know, at least you'd have that. Right. You know, door opening, closing, people moving about, you know, that tends to move air with pressure. Okay. All right. So what we'll start with, just so we don't, don't make it like too scary here, we'll start with a half of an air change per hour. So it takes two hours to turn over all the air that's in this space. Let me just explain a little bit what the chart looks like too. There's a separate line for different values of that air changes per hour. And this ranges from 0 0.01, which is effectively zero, up to like 22. And if you remember, I asked a little while back, what's a typical rate for that? You said it tends to be maybe like around six for something like a, a classroom or an office or something like that. So there's a different curve for each of those air changes per hour values. And so what we're looking at here for the scenario Tim just described is about 0.5. So the one I have closest to that on here is 0.6. And what that shows is that over about eight hours, the probability of exposure would be around 35%. So again, that's with no mechanical air changes in the room and the same people within that space. This is like stale air within the room for eight hours with somebody who is infectious and putting infectious stuff into the air. And that is a diagonal line. So that's, you know, eight hours is 35%. If you come down to like four hours, that's more at like 18%. You come down to two hours, it's about 10%. You come down to an hour, it's about 5%. Okay. So this is where like that restaurant example, and again, this is with no air movement in the room, but you know, that restaurant example, if you're just in that restaurant for an hour, maybe you only have a 5% chance of airborne infection. Whereas if you're in that same space for eight hours, you might be looking at more of a 35% chance. So that's where the risk of airborne infection could potentially start to become much more significant over time um, compared to the droplet risk. Right, and this is also assuming that the air changes that are happening in that room, the air is filtered or clean. It's not recirculating the same air over and over. Right. Is that how the formula works? Is that based on clean air or is it just based? Yeah, I guess it is. This is air within that room. So it's possible that if you're recirculating air, that you could be getting air from other rooms on the same ductwork system that are circulating in air that's fresh for that room, you know, that's not infected, that's coming in from those other rooms over a period of time. But then that gets us into a bigger discussion of then, you know, at what point does this room start to contaminate the other rooms? I think we'll get there, but let's hold on that for the moment and just think about the single room and assume that we're bringing in, as Goshi just said, outside air or at least filtered air that we're considering fresh air for this room. So then if we start to look at some actual air change values here, if we jump to about one air change per hour, those numbers start to change so that, so for eight hours, instead of 35%, that goes down to about 25%. If you're in a room with one air change per hour, at four hours, it's about 12%, you know, and at one hour, it's about... I can't read this, but it's probably about, I don't know, 3%, something like that. So then you get down to, let's say, two air changes per hour. Those numbers start to drop again. So at eight hours with two air changes per hour, you're down at like 11%, whereas at four hours, you're down to maybe like 3%, and at one hour, you're down, probably getting down close to 1%. The ASHRAE recommendation is that 
in light of the COVID studies and so forth and recommendations, they do say that your spaces should be at least two air changes per hour. Is that correct, Joe? At I minimum? did not read all that. So. I did. So they say at least two hours reduces the amount of, you know, but then again, it's through proper filtration yeah. and the rest of the measures that they'd like you to take. Right. So I just wanted to chime that in so that at least people are aware that the American Society of Heating and Air Conditioning for Engineers is recommending that uh, at least two air changes per hour. Okay, no, that's good. It's good to have that context of kind of what, again, you know, what's the baseline here? Obviously, it's not zero air changes per hour. There's almost no space that's going <laughs> to that's gonna have zero, I wouldn't think. I guess there could be some that don't have very good outside air capabilities, but yeah. And then obviously, you can go up from there. So if you get to like six air changes per hour, which Joe mentioned might be fairly common, that gets you down to even at eight hours, you're down to like a... That's maybe like 3%, two and a half, three percent 3%. Yeah, okay. Yeah, eight hours, you're down to like two and a half, three percent 3%, maybe. And then obviously it goes down from there. You get to like 12 rate changes per hour and that starts to drop to almost nothing. You're down in 1% even after eight hours. So that's where these air changes per hour, if there is a concern about airborne infection, the ventilation rate here is really a big deal for preventing the spread of that within a space and then bigger picture within a building. Yeah, it is pretty interesting when you're at the higher air change rate. I mean, it's what when you're obviously like nine, even six for those first five hours, it's very, very small chance. Right. So it seems like you can do quite a bit by just bringing in a decent amount of outside air and refreshing the air in this space. It actually is pretty effective at mitigating this infection risk again, with all the assumptions we've made here. Yeah, it's kind of like the same, you know, the curve starting to flatten out when your air change rates higher than three or something like that. Between three and 4.4, it seems like it starts to flatten up quite a bit. And it's very similar to the curve that I was talking about, the amount of time you need to purge a building, right? So if once your, you know, your air change rate is at two, it would be around 85 minutes to get 95% removal of contaminants. And if you jump to three, it said it would take 60 minutes, but then at four air changes, it was at 40 minutes. So it was only 20 minute different from there. And then at five air changes, it was at 30. So you can kind of see that it's sort of a, you know, different way. They're correlating with each other. Yeah. There's sort of like a diminishing returns. You know, you can keep cranking up that airflow, but the more you do it, the less of a benefit you get. So there's probably a bit of a sweet spot somewhere in the middle there, you know, around That's that right. two or four kind of air changes. Yeah. I think the goal here is that at some point, I mean, if you think about it just conceptually, it's like you have the person who's infected putting a certain amount of these virus particles into the air. And then you're kind of fighting that with the amount of fresh air you're bringing in. And you're trying to just keep up with that, right? You're trying to keep ahead of the amount that this person is producing by the amount of air that you're exhausting out of that space and the amount of fresh air that you're replenishing within that space. The numbers you were just talking about, how long it takes to clear the room, that's if you have this contaminant in the room and then everybody leaves and then the room's empty, then you scrub it. So the graph that we're looking at here is more like that contaminant is continuing to be put into the room during the time of occupancy here. So now we've kind of put this theoretical thing out there that whatever the numbers are, that there's certain air change values that are going to be pretty effective at hopefully controlling this thing and certain ones that aren't. Before we get into the specifics of how schools are managing that, just generally, what kind of capabilities are you guys seeing in schools? For one thing, 
you know, what are schools designed for in terms of the air changes per hour? And what are you guys, we talked about this a little bit already, but what are you seeing as their capability to start to take additional measures to address these risks? I would say most, I mean, new schools, they would, what we're saying, a lot of them, especially classrooms, you have air conditioning, you have good filtration. I would say, I mean, you're definitely hitting at least six air changes an hour, most likely more. I mean, nowadays with higher loads, more people have computers, so you have to have more of a cooling load. It would be easily six air changes an hour. And I mean, most of what we do, we have MERV 13 filters, which will take out fair amount of smaller particles. Is that right? So in new schools, you're putting MERV 13 filters in the air handlers in a, in a school building? Or is that something you're doing now because of COVID? In my experience, like I started in California and back in what, 2006, we were doing MERV 13 filters. California has them different codes and that stuff, but it was kind of good engineering practice. But these would also be recirculation systems. We would not do 100% outside air. It would be 20 to 30% outside air. So we'd have our MERV 13 filters to get the air before it leaves the air handling unit. Just to tag along a little bit on that note from Joe, LEED plays a little bit of a role in it too. Like, you know, code minimum says, you know, MERV 8, but then LEED says you have to have, imp- you know, to get a point, a LEED point, you can improve your filters to MERV 13. And oftentimes, good engineering firms, just, this is a standard practice that, you know, the first bank of filters is usually MERV 13. On the return side, however, it's typically MERV 8, it's not MERV 13. And I don't think that anybody really thought this through in terms of like the viruses and so forth, because in a mixed air system, sometimes up to 70%, sometimes even higher in the school setting, you could have a return air portion of it is a 70%. So it's only going through MERV 8. And then, like I mentioned before, that a virus that is a, a virus droplet uh, particle that's between 0.3 to 1 micron, MERV 8 filters are only about 20% effective. So it comes out and then it mixes with the fresh air. But again, from each VAC point of view, we always say that, you know, the problem to pollution is what? Delusion, (laughs) right? The solution to pollution is dilution, right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you mix air with that and, and then you bring it back in. So there is, that's a standard practice as far as, like Joe mentioned, he's been doing that since 2006 and I've been doing it maybe a couple of more years earlier than that. But, you know, residential is a completely whole different ball game. Like, for example, there was a time when I used to design buildings in the HVAC systems for, like, say, apartment buildings or elderly homes. And those were like a sort of heat pump systems that went into a closet that was open to the outside in the back and, you know, had a condenser that was located outside. Those filters were just like two-inch throwaway filters. I don't even think they had any ratings on them, period. Like MERV 3. Right. And there was no fresh air part of it, like, because it's residential. So there's no, like, there was not, like, a whole lot of requirement for fresh air. Uh, It was just relied on windows. Because even today, the code allows you to have, if you have operable windows, as long as they are 4% of the square footage of the rooms that they're in, it's not required to have a mechanical ventilation system. And so a lot of these apartment buildings get away with that and they just have a you know recirculating type so that filter and then if it's if it's a condo type situation where owner themselves are required to replace filters don't even get me started on that because 
the filters never changed until they 10 years later down the road they sell the house and someone else buys it and then they open the thing up and they say oh my god what is this this is a lot of mold that happens not everybody obviously not yeah i I definitely haven't done that at my house for the last two years (laughs) (laughs) what i can only imagine what kind of things are growing over there in australia I want to just quickly circle back on the lead thing. So lead says put more 13 filters in there. And again, we have some solutions that can solve this problem. And there is some like retrofitting and and things like that required. And I think we'll get into that shortly for what schools can do to overcome this problem and how they can, you know. But as far as the answer to your question, Tim, the air changes is in the schools is typically higher air change rates of six and up. So that's good news. Okay. So talking about new schools or recently built schools, we're probably looking at six air changes, possibly MARV-13 filtration systems worked in. So they're pretty well equipped to, I guess, do what needs to be done for, let's say, best practice for addressing what might be an airborne infection concern, right? Yeah, and some schools, like, for example, like, there are projects where there are chill beam jobs. It's not fan coils, but the chill beams. If you guys are familiar with chill beam, chill beam is kind of like a, a fan coil unit, but it has no fan in it. There are two types. There is a passive chill beam and there's an active chill beam. The active chill beam is driven by the amount of fresh air that's put into the chill beam from the air handler, and it creates this negative pressure across the coil, and so induction happens right at the return part of the grill, and then there's a filter in there. It's not a very fancy filter, throwaway filters again, but the amount of fresh air that's brought into the space is typically four to five times the amount of fresh air that you would have if it was a fan coil unit system or even if it was a mixed air system. So the chill beam type of projects those would be probably the cleanest rooms you could find, even maybe cleaner than hospital rooms. Okay, so that's new schools or newer schools, let's say. But of course, a lot of schools that are out there are not new. There's a lot of old, under-maintained, unimproved school buildings out there. And I know part of what you guys do is you're going out and evaluating some of these schools now, especially for the COVID risk, to see what they have and see what they can do to try to improve their systems to deal with the potential threat of, I guess, an airborne infection. What are you guys seeing out there in existing school buildings? Are you finding some that are not up to the task here, or are there things you can do with with almost any system to try to make it work? Definitely, obviously, you get the whole spectrum of schools. Some probably okay, some that might just have heat, not even ventilation, and those are probably the ones, and they have to actually do something to get ready. I mean, to be honest, it is. I see a whole range. I don't know if there is a typical existing school. Even trying to think back to my school growing up, I know we had optical windows. I don't know if we had any ventilation or not. Yeah, just to be clear there, you're talking about a lot of older buildings, not just schools, but a lot of older buildings might just have like hot water radiators or steam radiators within the room that are just heating that space but they're not using forced air. There's no fans, there's no ductwork or anything like that. You just have something that's heating the room, but there's nothing else that's moving air around within that space, right? Yeah, exactly. I know one, I guess I will just toss out a solution for that. There are, I mean, let's just say if you had a room, no ventilation, you can buy portable filters, like portable HEPA filters or high efficiency particulate something filters, like what a hospital would have, which it can remove I don't know, over 85, over 90% of small particles. You could just buy one of these, put it in the room and let it run more or less all the time to clean the air. I looked at that as a possible solution when I was trying to give ideas. To, I sent a note to like our 
my superintendent, you know, my district, just about all this stuff, just saying, Hey, have you guys looked at this? And one thing I suggested was maybe you can get some kind of portable thing that you can put in the room. But when I looked into them, at least the ones you can get like on Amazon, it seemed like the HEPA filters I was seeing were like comparable to maybe like a MERV 8. Is that right? Or when we talk about HEPA filters, are we talking about something that's a higher quality filter? Yeah. So I'm talking, yeah, like an actual hospital grade, laboratory grade, high efficiency filter. Is that something like a consumer can buy or is it like something you guys would specify as an engineer and that would you know get installed in this space? So I think something that that's something that probably we can look it up to is the certification that, you know, the HEPA filter people go through. But I just want to give a perspective of what a HEPA filter can do in terms of containing contaminants. Biosafety labs are something that military, especially U.S. military, is involved with where, you know, there is a lot of testing, chemical warfare, weaponry, you know, things like anthrax and scary things like that. Things like COVID. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, COVID, Uh, Wuhan experiment, whatever. So HEPA filters are actually used in those type of spaces, high-end HEPA filters, you know, multiple layers and so forth to filter out the air. So there are two types of filters, HEPA and HEGA filters that are used in the biosafety labs. And I personally had a pleasure, not so much, (laughs) of uh, working, building one years ago in 2006, actually, Joe, if you, when you started. And the biosafety for is so scary that epoxy coated everything. Everything is stainless steel. It's welded. It's not even threaded. You can't even use flux, any of that. And if you enter the lab, you have to go through a chemical shower that's vacuum sealed. So you enter one door and it seals first. Then you have to shower from all four, uh, six dimensions, bottom, top, right, left, corners, you have whatever, inside a suit. Then the next door opens, you get into another room and then it dries you out. And then you get out into another room where you take your you know, your hazmat suit off and put another one on and then you enter into it. So that's how scary those labs are. And that's where the HEPA filters are used. But, you know, those are obviously like lab grade HEPA filters. You know, we didn't really have to deal with that before. And stuff that's available on Amazon is primarily like residential grade. They're not really designed to be in a classroom, for example. Right. Know? Okay. So that that's what I was asking. Yeah. I'm looking online here. Of course, I just had to Google it. We actually bought some, like when this thing first started, we bought a couple of little like small room size, like HEPA filter things, which to be honest, yeah, looking at the size of this thing and the amount of air it's moving, I'm like, there's no way that's having any effect, (laughs) regardless of how good the filter is. We could probably do a quick math and tell you what air changes per hour, you know, that thing is putting out. If you send me a quick email. Uh, To be honest, it's like, it basically functions as a nightlight for the kids. This is kind of the way I see it. (laughs) It's an expensive nightlight. Yeah. Yeah. A white noise generator. Look up IV pair, P-A-I-R, or just do like IVpair.com. I saw it today. It was one of the U.S. national labs. They were doing research, I think it's like them and MIT and some other school, and they came out with this, I don't know if it's new, I guess it is new, this little like filtration system where they use, I don't know, it's like a, they charge or put some electricity through a part of a filter and supposedly it can kill bacteria and viruses. So another thing I wanted to ask you guys about is the UV filtration systems that go into some of these air conditioning things. So my understanding there is it's basically... You get UV light, which is, can be used to disinfect surfaces, right? Yes. I've got a bearded dragon lizard, and we've got a little UV lamp in his cage, you know? And I'm thinking, oh, well, what if you just put those things all <laughs> over the place? <laughs> 
so there are a few caveats with UV filters and a lot of times people ignore that. One of them, everybody pretty much is aware that, you know, they should be out of sight. So it shouldn't be anywhere, you know, where the UV is getting into your eyes. And to solve that problem, the industry said, look, we're going to give you the UVGIs, the upper room, they call them, upper room UVGIs. And then a few universities and different, uh, even I think it was like, you know, ASHRAE even was part of one of the studies where they found that when these upper room UVGIs were used, it obviously depended on how the air was distributed and so forth. Most of the time, the top portion of the building uh, or the inside the room was clean very rapidly, like it was perfect. However, the total effectiveness for the entire room was around 20%. So they got together with the different, you know, stratification, de- I'm sorry, destratification fan type of manufacturers like big ass fans. That's actually a name of the company. I'm not using Yeah, no, I've seen them. They're awesome. Uh, profanity here. That's actually a company. <laughs> they tested with the fans in the space. And what that allowed them to do is to move the air in a fashion that, you know, the whole air was sort of like moving so that the top of the room, the air was not stale. It was constantly pushed down, right? And the effectiveness of the UV GI system went from 20 to around 85%. So it was significant improvement on that. And these things are also in integrated into air handling systems. And there are certain things to be cautious about. They're perfect if they're located downstream of your cooling coil because cooling coil is something that gets saturated with water because of the how cold it has to be to provide, you know, like 55 degree or cooler air. So right downstream, you know, you could have a potential of like mold and other, you know, growth and so forth. So right there is a perfect location for it. However, UV filters require a certain airflow. UV needs a certain amount of time to work on air to be able to purify that air. And if the air is moving too fast for the UV light, it's ineffective. So what they say is it's perfect UVGI filtration. It's not really filtration. It's like light therapy, if you will. The ideal condition is between 400 and 500 feet per minute. And that's what you only see usually in inside the air handler. So the casing of the air handler or the fans and everything, that's where because of the size of the duct, they're typically sized for around 500 feet per minute. But yet, it still requires two feet of length. So that increases the size of your air handler by 24 inches. If it's implemented inside the duct, it could be the, you know inside a duct, right? And if it is inside the duct, the velocities of the ductwork are much higher than 500 feet per minute. So now what it means is that the size of that UVGI system has grown exponentially, only because it needs to shine on the air for longer periods to be effective. That means now there are limitations because, you know, ductworks are, you know, just the distribution. You could have a duct that comes off the air handler from the bottom of the air handler goes in and there's right off the bat there is like a couple of splits. Now you're maybe looking at adding multiple ones. And then it's a, it, it can be expensive, right? That's an added cost, running cost for an owner. Or one last thing about the UVGIs that uh, a lot of times people neglect to mention is that if it's inside the air handler and then the air handler filter is exposed to the UVGIs, it's very destructive to filter material. So care has to be taken when these are introduced into systems so that, and also insulation, it's very destructive to insulation. So sometimes you have an air handler with a casing which has a first sound attenuation reason. Sometimes you have a perforated panel on the inside and then there is a close form cell, you know, like insulation or some sort. And UVGIs could be very destructive to that. So when this technology is applied, just care has to be taken. And then, like I said, it could be not like a 
complete solution, but it could be a solution on top of other solutions, other things that, you know, like better filtration, more outside air, more air changes, and then you can add this to get even more further effective with uh, trying to clean the air. So it sounds like that would be something that's probably difficult to retrofit in most existing systems if you need to make the space for it in the ductwork or the air handler. Unless you're doing, as you said, like a, I guess a unit in a room that's kind of recirculating the air within that room, something like that. Is that, is that right? Yes. Or is this something that, that's worth considering? In some instances, actually, it could also be helpful. You can't put it in a supply duct where you just, if you have more room, for example, and to put it in the return end of things, then at least the mixed air that, because the fresh air you're bringing in, it is very less concern that there are contaminants in there. The one that's coming back from all these rooms into the air handler and it's going through MERV 8 because you can't fit a MERV 14 in it to clean it, maybe there's a potential to add some of that in there to clean it. So now that when it's being mixed with fresh air, you have zero, almost zero contaminants because now it's very effective in killing these viruses. Before we go on, I just want to, I need to correct myself here. So I just looked up HEPA filters and what they filter. And this is from Wikipedia. It says... In the U.S., HEPA filters remove at least 99.97% of airborne particles, 0.3 microns in diameter, which would be, I guess, the upper size of viruses. I think the coronavirus is supposed to be around like 0.125 microns or something like that. So you're right, Joe, that would be, if it's actually a HEPA filter that's meeting this standard, it would be effective against filtering viruses out. So I bet you've been looking at some other filtration systems that obviously weren't quite that good. Well, I bought an air filter from Walmart, and I think, I mean, some of them will call it, they just write like HEPA, that has like a HEPA filter, but, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's just like a... With two Ps? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, basically, it's just a little thin sheet of plastic that's obviously not what we would call a HEPA right, filter. Yeah. Now, I shouldn't say some of those might be effective for like filtering bacteria or filtering things like pollen or, or mold spores or stuff like that. But when you get to viruses, they're just that much smaller than those other types of particles that it's that much harder to, to filter them out. Mm -hmm. Right. There's always the fine print, right? And it says, hey, it's uh, it, it kills 99.9, .9, but, you know, it's above 3.0 micron and bigger yeah. particles, right? So then they wouldn't be lying. But, yeah. you know, it could still be a HEPA filter, but not the HEPA filter that we know. I think the one I bought is a happy filter <laughs> <laughs> from China. <laughs> That's good. As a comparison, so if it's able to contain viruses that are at 0.3, at 99%, it's much more robust than what you would have as MERV-16. MERV-16 is, you know, only 95% effective at 0.3 to 1 micron. So close enough, but, you know, HEPA filter is maybe a cheaper solution, if you will. Okay. So some solutions we've talked about here for schools to upgrade. One would be bringing something in the room where you can get some filtration rate. There might be ways to do that with some kind of UVGI ultraviolet light system. And then obviously within your existing air handlers, if you can retrofit some kind of better filter, if you can increase the outside air value, those are all things that could potentially help in these schools. What else are you guys seeing as strategies to try to address this? You mentioned sequencing earlier, and I cut Joe off, but do you want to get back into that and just talk about some other, I guess, operational strategies for trying to reduce these kind of infection risks? I think with the sequencing, one thing that we see, I mean, the idea is that you could purge, you run your air handling systems before occupancy and after. And if you run it before, you can kind of purge that air, get it nice and clean. You run it afterwards to evacuate the air, hopefully remove a substantial part of any virus or particulates. 
That's a pretty big one. Another is, I mean, especially now with like energy saving controls, you will almost want to reduce your outside air if you have some spot that, you know, maybe there's a conference room where you expect 10 people, there's only two, so you don't need that much outside air, you will decrease your outside air rate. We are seeing a lot of, I guess, uh, you basically will disable such controls so that you are not going to reduce outside air, even if you could to save energy, you will kind of maintain at least your minimum outside air and just let it run like that basically all day. I mean, if your systems do not have adequate filters, you could run your air handling systems all night and more or less just not shut it off. It's obviously an energy price you pay, but you hopefully have a much healthier environment. Yeah, but that's a pandemic mode, right? You can write a sequence that says this is a pandemic mode. Mm -hmm. And while we're in the pandemic mode, this is what's happening. You know, and I'd like to add one more thing to Joe's comments is oftentimes, and especially in schools or like areas where, you know, you have like classrooms, meeting rooms, we often in our sequences or design, sometimes we have a demand control ventilation integrated. So it's strictly going off of a CO2 level in rooms. So there are two ways of doing it. You sometimes have occupancy sensors or sometimes you have CO2 sensors. You have occupancy sensors when there's nobody in the room, the system goes to, you know, minimum. So if it was, say, if it was delivering 1,000 CFM cubic feet per minute in the room, now there's nobody in the classroom, now it's going to go back down to, like, say, 300 or something like that as long as building is occupied. And when the building's not occupied, it may just shut down, like the whole system shuts down. And the other way would be the CO2. So CO2 would be set to, say, like, run at this low speed as long as the CO2 levels of part per million are at around 500 parts per million. When they start to increase above 600, start to ramp up the speed of the fans and bring more air. So the air change rate starts to change in the room. And you go to, you know, like say twice as much air probably, right? And so with this pandemic control sequence, you can just default it so that you're always bringing the higher rate, whatever the system is sized for, so that the air change rate is higher and, you know, outside air is coming as much as like Joe mentioned. So there are a couple of ways that you could control. But again, like Joe mentioned earlier, that it comes at a cost. It's expensive. Yeah. So, I mean, what do you got? Obviously, this is obviously, it's, it's always with HVAC a balancing act between pressure, ventilation, and energy conservation. I mean, obviously, you could run 100% outside air all night long and keep these places pretty clean, but there's going to be a big cost for that in terms of energy use. What are you guys recommending in terms of kind of trying to strike that? I mean, I'm sure it depends on the system and the building, but how are you having those discussions? What discussions are you having with people about how to best manage that? Is it open everything up and just let it suck fresh air in, or do you really have to balance that ventilation, or I guess the risk of a lack of ventilation, with concerns about energy use? In my experience, what we've been doing is, you know, not necessarily like say you have to do this and this is what it has to be or otherwise all bets are off because there is no right answer here. You know, in the, in the beginning of the podcast, I'd mentioned that the science is not settled yet on this. So as we know more, we're recommending more things. So when we talk to different facilities, you know, whether it be a school or whether it be, a, you know, an office building or whatever it may be, we give them all the recommendations and then we let the owner decide the route that they want to choose and then we help facilitate that but there you know like i said there's no correct answer here it's just you know added measures and what the occupants and the owners of the building feel comfortable with 
So I guess to follow up on that, there was one more technical bit I wanted to get into about an article you sent us, Joe. But just to follow up on what you just said, Goshi, you're going to have schools all over the place that have all different kinds of capabilities in terms of their HVAC systems when we're looking at the potential for trying to introduce more air changes in these spaces. If I'm a parent who is concerned about this potential risk of airborne transmission of this thing, and I don't want my kid to be exposed, so I at least want to be able to have a minimal risk of exposure there. What kind of questions should I be asking my school and what kind of answers should satisfy me about how they're managing their HVAC systems? Should I just be asking about air changes? Should I be asking about filtration? What should I be looking for if I'm trying to understand the risk that I'm sending my kid into? I, was, I mean, definitely, it would almost be air change, filtration. I would even get into, I mean, like, I don't know if your schools are air conditioned or not. That could be a, I mean, it's not really, it's, it is kind of related. You want a comfortable environment so your kids are not, their body, their immune system, or whatever, is not stressed out because it's too hot or too cold. Even a comfortable temperature could play a factor. More or less filtration, airflow. If you have 100% outside air or if, you know, they're just recirculating because maybe maintenance closed outside air because it was cheaper. So, I mean, it's, if cleaning too, maybe they cleaned out their dog. Yeah. Another factor that we haven't really discussed too is the humidity in the rooms. I've seen some other studies. Yes, I was just going to say that. Do you want to jump in on that? Well, I didn't want to cut you off. Sorry. I just wanted to comment on that. That's right. Now you probably know better than I do. Well, I think we're all still learning. But Ashray did have a statement on that. And what Ashray says is that there is an evidence uh, that viruses tend to grow when the humidity levels are not controlled. And the ideal humidity levels that they recommend are anywhere between 40 to 60%. Now, in summer, uh, especially in the Northeast here, that's easy for us to do. We like to, at least the new HVA systems are sometimes designed up to like maximum 60% relative humidity, but more like around 50%. At least that's our experience anyways. So it's easy to maintain the, re the humidity control in summer, but when it comes to winter, it tends to drop quite a bit. It, you know, it, sometimes it's 20%, sometimes it's 15% inside the building, you know, 30%. So it drops below 40%. And it's very difficult to incorporate that inside the building, especially if it's an existing building, because now you have to introduce humidifiers, right? That are, you know, that's a little probes and they just inject like this, they sprinkle water into the airstream and then the air carries that. And, and then you have humidity sensors all over the place that are trying to maintain that. But the issue with that is that in the winter especially, there is a potential for microbial growth, you know, inside the walls and stuff. So most of these buildings are not, the envelopes are not designed to account for that. So, you know, the vapor barriers and all those things, uh, and I'm not an expert on, on envelope, an envelope consultant can probably speak better of that, but that's something that you need to consider and be looked at if someone decides to introduce, you know, like, say, hey, we, we have to maintain between 40 to 60%. And on top of that, Asher has also said that the human activity level, like, is improved. There is evidence of humans perform better when the humidity levels are controlled between 40 to 60%. Just to restate something you said there, you were talking about adding humidity systems. Most HVAC systems don't have humidification included in the system. Is that right? Unless you have a special need for it. Like I know certain hospital spaces, you're introducing humidification. But... Yeah. So hospitals would have it. And then sometimes what happens is like some instrument rooms sometimes, like say if you have some sort of piano that's, you know, made out of some special wood, 
where it's stored. Sometimes you need to maintain 35, 40%. Relative humidity is easy to do in winter, but then in summer. And also, like, for example, in colleges, universities, you may have like a curing room that's for concrete testing purposes, you know, stuff like that. Art rooms sometimes require, not always, but, you know, on the high end, uh, like college, university levels may require a humidity level to be maintained. Galleries, for example, art galleries may require. So in those instances, you would have a special dedicated system that would just serve those spaces and keep a relative humidity for those. You asked the question, right, Tim? You said that what kind of questions you should be asking? Yeah, do you have any other thoughts? Well, I, not necessarily like I have the questions, but there's something that ASHRAE published, and it's by ASHRAE Epidemic Task Force, and it's the Schools and Universities, uh, which was updated uh, 7 20 so just last week. It looks something like this, and you can look that up on the internet. And what this boils down to is that they've actually created a list of things to say how to reopen. Like, what are the things that uh, an institution can do? And it can apply to pretty much any facility, not just schools and universities. But generally speaking, they have like a list of create a committee and then create like this cleaning sequence that you have to do every day. And these things you have to check every month and you have to replace filters every bloody, bloody, blah. But it is available on ashray.org slash COVID-19. Yeah, so for parents, they can definitely go in and read that. I mean, it's I think it's 24 pages, but it's big writing. It's kind of like a presentation. It's not like a book. And it pretty much touches on a lot of stuff that we have spoken about and measures that you can take and a school or, a, or an institution or a building can take to control COVID spread. Joe, there was one more kind of technical discussion I wanted to have, which was you had sent us an article about somebody looking at essentially an equation, kind of like we looked at this equation to say, how do you control the infection risk within a room? You sent us an article that looks more like building-wide if you have an interconnected ductwork system where you can start to measure those risks and start to account for outside air infiltration and stuff like that. Can you talk a little bit about how that works? And we've talked about all the strategies here, but just how, I guess, designers can be thinking about that. Sure. So that article was in the newest edition of Ashray Journal. The author, he takes you through kind of an interesting thought process. Obviously, he makes assumptions to simplify it. And the idea is to understand if you have person A is in one room and he's sick, contaminated, whatever, person B is in another room, they're healthy. Given your system parameters, filtration, outside air, and then also like how much airflow or how much like building area is in the sick versus the total, you can get an idea of how well your system spreads the contamination, basically. He assumes that it's you know you're kind of stationary for the whole time so that time is not a factor and it just kind of boils down to a steady state equation it uses i mean just basically that you could take like your different filtration rates to compare you know if you have like a 50 percent filter versus a 99 percent filter to get an idea of how you can basically compare apples to oranges that way and make them both apples so you can look at it and be like, well, if I increase my outside air, the ability of my system to spread any disease is equivalent as if I put in a different filter. It's kind of a, a neat way to compare, I mean, especially for an existing building, like for a school, you could use someone like his equation in there and compare your school building to maybe like a, a new building if it had 
maybe a higher end filter, very good ventilation. It would kind of relatively show you how much worse or how better the other system is. One thing that I thought was kind of interesting about it, it shows that the room where the sick person is, if it has a very effective ventilation system, it just means, I mean, great, it's great for that guy, but it also means you're capturing a lot more of the bacteria or disease and spreading it around. It can also, it really clearly shows the impact of having a recirculation system versus 100% outside air. I mean, it kind of, it makes it really obvious the benefit of increasing outside air. I think we're getting towards the end here. Thank you guys for taking all the time with us. There was one more, a very important question I wanted to bat around with you guys, which is masks. What do we all think about masks? What can they do? What can't they do? I have my ideas, but um, you guys are the air quality guys. Let me open that up to you and, and see what you think. I will just say, if you have a mask on, it does not block your sound. So be careful if you do have one. People can still hear you. <laughs> That's a good one. I want to hear what Joe B has to say about that. <laughs> well, I've got my whole kind of conspiracy theory, which maybe I'll finish with that. All right, let me go first, and then you guys can react to me, because I'm probably the most conservative on this one. Yeah, because what I say is going to discredit the entire thing that we've just done. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, I'll go first. And remember, I'm coming at this from a background in healthcare design, hospital design. You know, I worked exclusively on hospitals for about seven years of my career. And so in hospitals, there is this mindset of infection control of this person's infected in this room. We want to contain that. We want to use PPE. We want to, there's all these different strategies for controlling and managing that infection risk within a role. So that's kind of the, that's kind of the headspace that I've been in with this whole thing. Obviously, when you go into the world, it's a very different situation, but I kind of, I'm kind of predisposed to this, this concept of infection control. So my thought with the masks, getting back to the whole discussion about the droplets and the aerosols, I think there are a couple things that masks can do and a couple things that they can't do. First of all, talking about droplets, right? People are saying if you social distance six feet, then you don't need to wear a mask because you, know, you don't have that risk of these droplets getting to you, or at least it's a very low risk. I don't really buy that. I think that there can be a risk, as we've talked about, both from some smaller particles going a little further and being exposed, as well as obviously a sneeze or a cough or something, which, as we said earlier, can project these particles much further. So for me, with the droplet risk, there was this meme going around that if neither of us are wearing pants and you pee on my leg, then my leg gets wet. If I'm wearing pants and you pee on my leg, then my leg gets a little less wet. If you're wearing pants and you pee on my leg, then only your pants get wet and, you know, my pants don't get wet. So that's kind of the idea, the way that I look at masks is that, you know, my mask protects other people and, and other people's masks protect me. But again, it's, I think, a modest amount of protection. I've read some people who say that with these larger droplets, the mask can stop maybe 50 to 90 percent even. And again, those particles then could become aerosolized and stuff too. So there could be some mitigation of the aerosol control as well. but. That's my thought on that. But what masks can't protect against, and some of the studies where people are like, oh, look at this study. These people were in masks and this, you know, this guy still got it. The mask didn't do anything. What the masks don't protect against very well is this airborne infection. 
right? Because if you imagine if you're smoking a cigarette with a mask on, you know, you blow the smoke out. If you have one of these little cloth masks on, the smoke's still going to come out and still going to go out into the room. Maybe it filters a little bit of that, but not much. So to me, the mask can provide a little bit of protection from this airborne risk. But if you're in a space with somebody for four hours, and if this airborne transmission is a viable path, then the mask isn't going to do much to protect you at that point. So I'm not saying that a mask, you know, these little cloth masks protect you in all these different situations, but I think it can provide some protection against droplet spread if the person who's infected is wearing one. So I'll stop there and let you guys tell me I'm wrong. And hold on, one more thing, one more thing. Even outside, even outdoors, I think that's possible. Outdoors is much more of a, obviously you have much more air movement, much more dilution and everything, but even outside, I think that mask can provide some degree of protection. Really quick, I would just, I mean, I try not to put myself in situations where, I mean, I guess in general, I like my space, so it's kind of nice. But regarding the masks, my general take, for the most part, I am okay not wearing one. If I want to go into a store and they require it, I put it on. But as far as it being useful, I mean, my mask, my mom made me my mask, and I think she's not a horrible sewer, but it is just more or less two pieces of fabric. And, you know, it's not sealed all around my face. It's not form-fitting. So obviously, like, even breathing, you know, it escapes. A lot of my breath escapes, hopefully. Otherwise, I mean, you don't want to just be rebreathing your own air. So I don't, I mean, on the mask, I, I'm sure there is some, they're obviously useful. If you have the right mask, it's more useful. If you buy one of the power fan-assisted HEPA filter masks, obviously that would be probably the best thing to do. Like if you wanted to be sure, you would buy a power-assisted HEPA filter mask. Yeah, and I guess I should clarify that. What I see masks is doing, it's not that you have any less particles maybe getting out there especially airborne particles, but I think that it can stop the trajectory of especially larger particles from coming out and spreading within that six-foot radius or that 27-foot you know, sneeze distance or whatever. So it's kind of one angle of attack, but it's not a saving grace for this whole thing. Like, I don't think if we all wear masks that this thing goes away in two weeks or whatever people say, you know. I go next. So this is where my conspiracy nut job comes out. I believe that it's all about conformity. It has nothing to do with science. Maybe it provides some protection. But I'm also of the opinion that this COVID spread is as dangerous to certain demographics as the influenza is. And we never bother to wear masks when it comes to that. I don't really like to rely on studies all that much because oftentimes they get debunked by somebody else and who knows who's lying who's not lying. But one of the recent things that I saw just to support my hypothesis is that the masks are not effective, uh, especially for smaller particles or aerosols, is by a couple of PhD doctors from University of Colorado that have just come out two days ago and said that masks for all for COVID-19, not based on sound data, and their names are Margaret Sietsima and then Lisa show and she's retired, I believe. She just retired last year from the university. And they're both PhDs and immunologists. So this was their sort of expertise. And then I've also seen some doctors, uh, especially like emergency room doctors and even, you know, and there are not many. I mean, obviously, the most of the doctors take the official narrative, but there are some doctors who say that we don't wear masks because the only reason we wear masks is because we don't want our spit when we have someone cut open. We don't want our spit to fall into their open wound and infect them somehow. 
so there is that evidence that you know but again it depends on the size of the particle so if we're going to say that we need at least MERV 14 to get 90% of this virus under control then we know that for sure that your masks are useless yeah just to be clear i'm not saying that me wearing a mask protects me significantly i think that especially from airborne particles it does these masks do probably nothing against these smaller aerosolized airborne particles. I'm just saying that for somebody who is infected wearing a mask, that I think there's some level of protection there for other people. Yeah, I saw a study which is similar to one that, that Gosh had just mentioned, which was, it might have been the same one, but basically they did sort of a meta-analysis of some other previous studies, not for COVID, but for other similar diseases like SARS and flu and stuff like that. And it was actually pretty much a randomized controlled study. So it's, you know, more or less the gold standard as far as science goes. They were looking at randomized controlled studies, looking at the effectiveness of masks, as well as some other things like washing hands and stuff like that for preventing disease. And they basically found that there was effectively zero additional benefit. And there was, of course, a bit of a range there. But on the average, there was effectively zero additional benefit on this sort of epidemiological scale of things. Now, I don't know. You know, it's funny because, you know, we when we talk about like Austrian economics, right? Austrian economics starts from these very basic microeconomic assumptions and then builds up this whole kind of macroeconomic system from there. And Austrians get a lot of criticism for that approach, what they call the a priori approach, where they basically say, well, but look, there's all these complexities in the real world that you guys aren't looking at. And I think some of the stuff with the masks is sort of doing that same thing where they're basically saying, well, look, obviously, if I've got a mask on and I'm talking, it's going to catch some of this stuff coming out, out of my mouth. But what this meta study does is it's just looking at it said, okay, that's great. We're going to look at what has actually happened when people have worn masks and when they haven't. And it's basically come out, you know, because there's probably other factors that go into it, like actual compliance, you know, when, are they actually wearing the mask all the time and stuff like that? You know, and, and you see these people around where like they've got a mask hanging down around their chin, you know, they got it on, but it's not, a, it's not coming to face. It's, <laughs> it's not fitted at all to their face. So they're just blasting stuff out the sides of it or whatever. So just to sort of second what Gosha said, I, I think I agree that a lot of the mask stuff, you know, even though, yes, it has a sort of a priori reasonability to it, it, it does sound like a reasonable assumption to make. And you know what, realistically, it's like, what's the cost? of wearing a mask. You know, it, it's a little bit of a, you look kind of weird, but these days it's like the cool thing to do. So I don't know. Again, I'm in a place here in Australia, we have zero cases. There's no restrictions being enforced. I haven't worn a mask throughout this whole thing. My, my wife actually like had ordered a pack of masks, like a hundred bucks worth of masks off of Amazon, like right when this thing first started. <laughs> so we've got these like surgical masks sitting in a box somewhere that we haven't actually used. So I haven't been in, immersed in that culture of mask wearing, which you guys have over there. Like I got to go in about five minutes, so I'm just going to spew out my crackpot take, <laughs> which has been promised. All right, fire away. The first thing I need to talk about, which, which we haven't discussed, is that there is another source of virus-containing aerosols. And I think there was a case study, I think from maybe from the original SARS or from some flu or something like that. And that is, of course, the threat of contagion due to aerosolized diarrhea. I can't tell you how many nights I've woken up <laughs> dreading that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you won't sleep tonight. Look up that study. You just kind of think that over and then, uh, yeah, you won't sleep. Yeah, you know, it's funny reading all this stuff, all this research that we've been looking into. I'm so self-conscious now, like when I talk 
about how much crap is coming out of my mouth, you know, beyond the crap that I'm speaking, you know, the actual <laughs> fluids that are coming out of my mouth. I was having coffee with someone the other day and I'm like, this guy's talking about me. I'm looking at my coffee cup. I'm like, that coffee cup's like this far away from his mouth. How much of his spit is getting into my coffee right now? You know? See, he should be wearing a mask. You gotta be wearing, <laughs> a, mask. wearing a mask. <laughs> Fear is the real virus, you guys. <laughs> That's it. Here's my crackpot tape. So the whole thing with this is everyone's saying, oh, look, we got to have all these measures in effect until there's a vaccine. You know, it spreads so rapidly, which if you compare it to the, the original SARS in 2003, there was only 8,000 people that were infected with that. It was basically managed to be contained because it was only spreadable by people who had pretty visible symptoms. So the only places where it was really spread were like in hospitals, as well as there was a few kind of people that got exposure and then took it home to Canada or something like that. But for the most part, if people say, oh, well, the original SARS virus just died out, so that could happen with this one too. It's a bit of a different animal here. This one is much more, obviously much more contagious. It is spreading a lot more. And you know, there's some controversy over this asymptomatic spread thing, but it's not completely crazy. You know, it seems like a reasonable assumption based on the evidence. So what everyone says is, oh, well, so basically we got to have all these lockdowns and everything in effect until the point when we can have a vaccine, right? A, a safe working vaccine. Again, I'm no biologist. I'm an epidemiologist. I just think that's completely ridiculous. It, I just think it's, it's a pipe dream. It's not going to happen in any reasonable amount of time. Or if it is, it's certainly not going to be tested, you know, long-term tested or anything like that. So I'm thinking, okay, well, what's some other potential way to approach this thing? And I actually heard a podcast with some other guy. I think this guy was an economist basically saying the same sort of thing. Saying, look, there's no way you can ever have a virus for this thing. Don't even, like, don't even pretend. A vaccine. Oh, sorry, a vaccine for this thing. Like, that's just ridiculous. But he's saying basically what you could do is you could essentially expose people to it in some sort of controlled environment let them develop natural immunity, and then they kind of go out and have this herd immunity, right? Now, of course, we know that old people are very susceptible to this thing, so you wouldn't want to have old people doing this, but you could have young, healthy people. You could do whatever screens you need to do, make sure their vitamin D levels are good and everything, and then you, you rent out a hotel somewhere. You go and put them in a room. You spray a little COVID <laughs> at him and you say, okay, now you hang out. Put him on a cruise ship. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. So now you hang out in this hotel room or this cruise ship or whatever for the next two weeks. That's your quarantine period. And you know, you might get sick. You might not get sick. You'll have medical people in the area that can support you if you get sick. But essentially what that's doing is it's, it's the same thing that a vaccine would do. It's exposing people to the virus and allowing them to develop that immunity. And then eventually you can build up that herd immunity which means that there's so many people that have it that it's very hard for the virus to find new people to spread to. Just to add to that, I, I just want to say that Reason Magazine, July 1st, had a, an article that said the COVID-19 herd immunity is much closer than antibody tests suggest, says two new studies. And both of the studies, you can read up online, but apparently there are two studies, Germany and France, I believe they've done, one on 200 people and the other on 365 people with random people. Some were asymptomatic, some were actually... COVID with symptoms, and they found that uh, the herd immunity was like achieved in four days or something like that. So I think those studies are sound very promising, except that at the time, at least a month ago, they were not peer-reviewed. So an art article does mention that in there. So I'm hoping that, I hope that that is a good news. And if that's the case, then I think we may be on the right track there. Yeah. And I actually just saw a study, I think that was announced, it was all over the news yesterday, saying COVID may have spread 10 times 
more than what we've previously measured because what they were doing is that they were measuring these uh, samples, I don't know if they're blood samples or spit samples or what from people that they kind of had on file. And they, and they actually found this prevalence of it was 10 times more. So 10 times more people have been infected by it than what the current stats show, which implies that it's actually 10 times less dangerous, right? Because you got that many more people if you're looking at the sort of, you know, case fatality rate, case hospitalization rate or whatever, if the actual number of cases is that much higher, then the actual real danger of it is much lower. And it also means that you have a lot more immunity already in the population. And again, it also means that a lot of people are just not as susceptible to getting sick from it. Another point I just want to make around this is, you know, when you start talking about herd immunity, people say, oh, well, but we don't know if the immunity is going to be long lasting or if it's just you get immune and maybe six months later, you can get reinfected. But I guess my point on that is, well, that's going to be the same case whether or not you get infected in this sort of exposure method or if it's a vaccine. Correct. Now, of course, if it's a vaccine, then that's the best situation for Pfizer because that means, oh, well, you got to get a booster every six months, <laughs> you know? And so there's this, they're saying Pfizer or whoever comes up with this thing is going to have like a $15 billion windfall when they release this vaccine, <laughs> you know, but that's if it's a one-off vaccine for everybody, you know, what happens when it's like every six or 12 months, everyone's got to get a booster, just like the flu shot. You know, because the flu shot mutates and all that. And the other thing with the, the SARS thing is early on, I was looking at trying to work out, look, what's the mutation rate of this thing? From what I can see, I don't think anyone really quite knows that at this stage. And I, I don't know, I haven't done a lot of research lately on that to see if that's been nailed down a bit better. But one early thing I found was suggesting that it was somewhere like between influenza A and influenza B rates, which, as we know, those things mutate every year, which is why the flu shot doesn't work. <coughs> I agree with that. I agree <laughs> with that. But it's regardless of whether it's the flu shot works, it's why you, you're supposed to get a new flu shot every year, because the idea is that you're getting a, a new strain of the virus every year, right. the, which the scientists hope matches whatever actually happens to be going around in the society. So my crackpot take on that is basically that sort of thing. You know, it's saying that you send kids to school. We know that kids have very low susceptibility to getting dangerously sick from this thing. And now, of course, yes, there are kids who have gotten sick. No kidding. Look at the statistics. It's a vanishingly small number. And if you're worried about that, there's things you can do. You know, you, there have been studies showing that vitamin D deficiency is a pretty big factor in susceptibility to this thing. Rhonda Patrick is someone who has done a lot of good work summarizing a lot of the papers that are out there and a lot of the research that's out there on different susceptibilities and stuff like that. So theoretically, you send kids to school someone's spreading COVID, it could have this effect of conferring immunity on them if they're getting exposed to it in a small enough dose that they don't get, that's another thing we haven't really talked about too, is that we've mentioned this infectious dose. Obviously, if you're with someone in a hospital room for 12 hours and they're coughing all over the place, you know, you're going to experience a bigger dose of this thing than if you walk into a shop where someone's had it in the last half hour and get a smaller dose. And basically, there seems to be a threshold where under a certain dose, you know, you're effectively going to develop immunity without getting symptoms. What that dose is, we talked about this quanta or the infectious dose earlier, it's going to vary wildly for different people, you know, but it seems to be that kids need a much higher amount to get sick compared to old people need a, seems like a pretty low amount of the virus to get sick. So that's kind of my thinking is that, now I'm not saying that you should just willy-nilly send kids into a place where the virus could be and expose them. Like, that's no way 
you know, you shouldn't be ex doing these biological experiments on kids, <laughs> you know? Like, <laughs> yeah, don't do that. <laughs> you know, I, hmm. it probably doesn't need to be said, you know, but the reality is it's a natural experiment, really. You know, some kids are going to go back to school, some kids aren't. And we've talked about ways you can try to mitigate that risk. But at the end of the day, um, you know, life is risky, things happen. And I guess we'll find out what happens once these kids all start going back to school. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's a good point to end on. Go Shinjo, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. I really enjoyed having this much of a technical conversation on this topic. I think that it's something that isn't really on a lot of people's radar. At least I haven't heard about it. I mean, maybe you guys see it in your industry, but part of my concern is that as schools are looking at strategies to reopen, that they might be underestimating this potential of airborne risk. And to my mind, when you're in a space with other people for eight hours, that risk may start to become significant related to these other modes of transport. So I think we at least came up with some ideas here, things people can be looking at to try to mitigate that potential risk. And hopefully, as people are sending their kids back to schools, they can get some kind of reassurance from their schools about what they're doing and ways that they can manage their HVAC systems to hopefully help combat this thing. So thank you, Goshi and Joe. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, You're Joe. Most, most welcome. Thank you. Well put uh, podcast, and we always enjoy you guys listening to you guys. Thank you so much. Thanks. Sorry, before we go, do you guys just want to say something quickly about, about your podcast? Engineering.tech. You know, I, I'm disappointed. I don't know if you remember this, but when you guys were setting this podcast up, I had suggested a name, which you guys didn't take. Do you remember what it was? I think there was like 50 different names that were suggested to me, although... I must say, the name that we've chosen was an inspiration that we got from the name of your podcast. <laughs> I, oh, I know. I appreciate that. Yeah, I definitely could. We could, uh, we should, we, we'll sign you guys on as a sub-consultant, I guess, on our, on our future podcast. There you podcast. go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be happy to join. So the name, you know, my name for your podcast was, you got two guys, two HVAC engineers, right? Talking about libertarian topics and stuff. So the name I came up with was Blowing Hot Air. Huh? Uh, I remember that. Yes, I remember that now. That's hilarious. That's pretty good. Yeah. See, how could somebody take us serious if we had a podcast name like that? That was my issue. Maybe that could just be your tagline. Maybe you should just you know just tag that on. I the think end. we we can we incorporate that. that. Here's yeah. here's Goshi and Joe blowing hot air. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. I love it. We're gonna start using that too. Yeah. I'm all in. Well, thanks a lot, guys. Um, hopefully, some people will go over and check that out. If you like the technical content on this episode, um, you guys do get into some really cool technical topics about all kinds of things, not just building and engineering related, but you're kind of looking more broadly at the world of tech and, and some of the intersections with some libertarian ideas. That's right. Mm -hmm. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. Bye. Thanks. Yeah, bye. Thanks for listening to Anarchitecture Podcast, the built environment of a stateless society. Visit anarchitecturepodcast.com to follow our blog and social media and find out how you can support us through Patreon or with cryptocurrency. Yeah, Let, can we save that? For, let's save that for the episode. Maybe we just start rolling, huh? Because cause I think we could have a, we should we should discuss that in the episode. I thought we were rolling. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I don't know. What do you think, Tim? Are we rolling? Yet? I want all my jokes <laughs> back. I was. I, I'm gonna. Re, I, would, I, I want to worry. use them. We always do outtakes at the end. <laughs> okay. So the best uh, jokes right, make good. it to the outtakes. I mean, generally, it's like I wanted to start by talking about there's this whole controversy about is it transmitted by droplets or airborne, you know, aerosols or, or surface spread. Like it is all a hoax. <laughs> or is it all a hoax? <laughs> so this is what I, this is what Joe said beforehand. He said this whole email, and um, I think the way I want to kind of set this up. It's all out. Do you really believe that or no? Are you no, joking? no, I'm just This is a really short I'm sorry, when I'm talk- <laughs> I, have, I have to ask that question when I'm, when I'm talking to libertarians. <laughs> you never know, right? You never know. I think my attitude, well, I mean, I mean the, you know, I, I think I'm kind of biased because I am in this position where it's not a big deal here because there aren't cases. But like in Melbourne, they've had a, a lot of escalating cases lately, but they're also testing like 40,000 people a day. In Melbourne, so of course they're fine. If they were testing people like that here, they'd probably find some cases too. You know, it's kind of like you know, everyone made fun of Trump. He made some comment about, oh, you know, if they stop testing people, then you will stop finding all these cases, which is it's actually true. But he said it kind of backwards. He should have said like, well, the reason they're finding so many cases is because they're testing more people. But of course, it being Trump, you know, he had to say it the dumbest way possible. So <laughs> <laughs> he reminds me of Bush Jr. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> just a little bit. No, I actually, on that same note, Joe, I remember seeing a meme, and the meme said something like this: If you know, if if you did a lot of IQ tests, more IQ tests you'll take, more dumb people you'll find. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, because there's probably a selection bias, like the kind of people that take IQ tests. Probably tend to be a, a bit higher <laughs> IQ, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> After Joe's done blowing his nose. You got the COVID over there, Joe? <laughs> we had school holidays for like two weeks, and then the kids just went back to school this Monday. And my kid, he went over and slept over at a friend's house for two nights, the previous Thursday and Friday. They camped out. And then Sunday comes down with like a fever and coughing and everything. So his first two days back at school, he was homesick. <laughs> so, oh it's my like, gosh! It's like uh, it's probably not COVID. <laughs> Did you get him a test? Nah, <sighs> I've had like a sore throat the last couple of days too. It's like mm, it's super spreader. Again, I'm like, nah, I'm not. Again, it's like you know, if you don't test, it's not COVID. So. <laughs> Some people would say, even if you do test, it's not COVID. <laughs> False positives. That's it. What do you think? We ready to roll? Yeah. These guys have been ready to roll for the last 15 minutes. We keep running our mouths. <laughs> I'm so mad about that. <laughs> Bye, Joe. Thanks, guys. Yeah, I got to go get my teeth Thanks, clean. <laughs> Make sure the dentist wears a mask. <laughs>